the blast from our past network. Hey everybody, co-host Corey here. I just wanted to take a second and say thank you to all of our Patreon members who help support the show. Each month, they get access to The Carpenter Factor, Wrap Up After Dark, and all kinds of other fun exclusive content. You can sign up for our Patreon over at patreon.com slash podcastingafterdark. Again, that's patreon.com slash podcastingafterdark. Other ways you can help support the show and help us grow is leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We also have a merch store where you can pick up a t-shirt or two, as well as some other fun items. You can find every link to our podcatchers, to our merch store, to Patreon, everything at podcastingafterdark.com. That's podcastingafterdark.com. Now back to the show. Lock your doors, close your windows, turn out your lights, for chills and thrills await you. It's time for Podcasting After Dark with your hosts, Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. Stay with a friend, say your prayers as grisly ghouls close in to seal your doom. Tonight's episode, The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, starring Ray Lovelock, Christina Galbo, and Arthur Kennedy. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Podcasting After Dark. I am one half of the pad team, Corey, a.k.a. Sleazy C. Joined with me, as always, is my brother from another mother. And this week, we have a fun, early 70s, unique zombie film, sort of in the vein of children shouldn't play with dead things. But unlike that Bob Clark uh, U.S. cult classic that was filmed in Miami... This movie takes place in the UK, but it was written by two Italian screenwriters and directed by an art house filmmaker from Barcelona. That's right, we are talking about The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, aka Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Zach, my man, how's it going, buddy? Hello, love. Hello, love. <laughs> Hello, love. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I love, uh, I feel like I just got back from 1974 in my Mini Cooper with my chicky baby in the car with me. Doopy, 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 doo. <laughs> I'm ready to trip down Fantasy Lane with a little bit of zombies, a little bit of, ah, uh, well, post-60s cool guy, leather jacket. Rock and roll and get ready to rumble. Dooby dooby doo. Why do I sound like the junkard from Transformers the movie? We'll be right back. The whole time, buddy. I was like, he sounds exactly like the junker from Transformers the movie. Um, but bro, right off the top, man, we uh, and we'll talk about our experience with the movie, but I love this era of zombie movies. We talked about it extensively um, on on Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. And while they're not really connected, I say you should definitely have listened to that episode before this one because I think there's going to be a lot of parallels. But one thing we talked a lot about on that episode in particular was how we kind of enjoy this era. It's, it's post Night of the Living Dead, but pre-Dawn of the Dead. So the rules haven't been solidified yet. And... I love the weird takes that these filmmakers have on the zombie genre before everything becomes sort of the same post Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, if 
if a if a Brit got if a Brit and an Italian had a baby, it would be this movie. Uh, it's Hammer Horror meets the beginning of what we've come to know and love in the zombie genre. So uh, I love it. I mean, this this movie I've seen several, several, several times. Honestly, the first time I saw it was when Anchor Bay put out their Tin Can uh, DVD edition. I, I wish I still had it. I was talking to Lee Germany offline about this. Uh, I think he, I think that's the version he may have. Um, but I bought it when it came out because the box looked amazing, and I'm like, this is gonna be so good. If Anchor Bay's putting this out and they're putting it in a tin next to the Beyond, that it's got to be great. Like I, I don't know how many tins Anchor Bay put out, but I had like Two Lane Blacktop, the Beyond, let's see. Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, a.k.a. the Manchester Mystery House 3000. Oh, my God. So many damn t- names and titles. I can't get them all straight. However, yeah, I I, I love this movie. Uh, I love the, the kind of pre-era that it that it kind of, you know, is a part of. The, the, the mid-era, I guess. The mid-zombie uh, era, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it's phenomenal. And I'm so glad you brought it to the table. And I can't wait to discuss it, love. No, I, I knew you were already a fan of it. Um, and real quick, I actually have two copies of that Beyond uh, tin can from Anchor Bay. One is Bragger. I know. It's still sealed in plastic. Um, but, yeah, dude, I actually uh, had my one of my film uh, professors in college. That would be Towson University, where Mike Flanagan uh, went to school, director Bragger. of Dr. Sleep. <laughs> Bragger! Bragger! Uh, so the teacher showed us this movie as like this, like, like how it's supposed to be. It's an alternative zombie film um, with very unique themes running through it. It's, it's anti-fascism. It's pro-environmental so it's got a lot of things that it's trying to say about society Um, but then also there's this really cool zombie story that's happening you know juxtaposed against this beautiful backdrop this beautiful you know british countryside backdrop and then you have like this these two protagonists that don't really like each other at first but by the end of the movie, I'd say, you know, you can see the the sorrow in George's eyes by the end. Like, I do think that over the course of this movie, they do grow to like each other. But I love the fact that this movie is like, they hate each other at the beginning. And I think that's such an interesting take on things. And uh, yeah, man. And, and it was another, it was a video nasties, you know, um, on the UK list and everything. So this one, I mean, this has a a strong history to it um the i believe what we both have the synapse blu-ray um it has a 90 minute uh documentary on it where they talk to the director and they talk to a bunch of other people um but it's it it's it has a very important part of of horror history i i believe it it, it sits in a very important area yeah this is not a unknown movie i think to horror purists However, it's one that uh, maybe doesn't get brought up all that much. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I kind of spit out a couple things that I love about it being the the beautiful environments and everything and the special effects. But what sort of gravitated you to this film when you first watched it? It's all about atmosphere. This movie's all about atmosphere. It's the the first, yeah, no, all 90, 
94 minutes or 93 minutes, whatever it was. Um, it's it's all mood. It's it's setting. It's pacing. Uh, it's phenomenal. If you love Hammer horror films and that, and they're all about atmosphere and mood, uh, mixed in with a little bit of gore, not too much, but enough to freak you out, uh, and male body hair, <laughs> a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So much so where I'm like, damn, one dude could braid his pubes. <laughs> and of, it's disgusting. And of course, man, the score in this movie is fantastic with the the incorporation of these like breathing and stuff and almost like a heartbeat rhythm to it sometimes. I love the score for this movie. I thought that was me when I was watching this. <laughs> Here's some ASMR for you guys. <laughs> That's how I eat my food. I'm just kidding. I'm repulsed by that. I know. I do have one aversion in life, really, and it is the sound of chewing food. I cannot stand it. Oh, yeah. No, me too. My mom will call me, like, with something in her mouth, like, just eating, and I'm like, no. And I just hang up and be like, call, I'll text her, call me back when <laughs> wow. you're done eating. My God. No. 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 <laughs> um, but, all right, yeah, so you want to get into this cast and crew because yeah, it's like, there's a lot of people to talk about, but at the same time, I'm not really familiar with most anyone here. Now, I will say, Zach, we are going to have to bring up the the guy who did all the special makeup effects because we saw him again. We, we're going to see him again later in another movie that we've covered on Pad, but we'll get to that in a second. All right. Well, we'll start with Christina Galbo, who plays Edna, and uh, she is known for... Uh, a lot of, you know, Italian films, um, movies that I can't even pronounce correctly. And if I tried, uh, I'm sure Dustin from $2 Late Fee would be like, you didn't fact check that. You didn't you didn't source that. You didn't find out the actual name. How dare you? What is wrong with you? <laughs> um, yeah, well, she was in Riot in a women's prison. What have you done to Solange, which is actually a very... Uh, I think well-known giallo film um, that that's you know up there with don't touch don't torture a duckling yeah and stuff like that um, slaughter on the Kyber Pass that's a great name as well the house that screamed etc cetera, etc cetera. a lot of 60s and 70s movies so uh, and of course you know she's in a movie with Klaus Kinski so I'm sure if you know I'm sure she loved that experience. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm sure she would, you know, ever interviewed about Klaus. She'd probably have flower things to say about Klaus Kinski. <clears throat> Anyways, what have you done to Solange? Yeah, I think is a is a film that I would not be surprised if we bring that to pad in the year 2035. Okay, very cool. <laughs> I'm actually very surprised that um, she's topped build and not Ray Lovelock. She he should be. Um, Ray Lovelock, by the way, greatest last name ever. I'm going to say yes. He unfortunately died at the age of 67 uh, in 2017, but he was in uh, countless movies. Um, Fiddler on the Roof is probably is top billed on his IMDb, but there's a great movie called Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. Oh, okay. If that's not a good title for you, then I don't know what is. I think... Kino put that out. Uh, if you can get your hands on it, I highly recommend it. I don't own it yet. Uh, I will own it soon. <laughs> um, 
yeah, live like a cop, you should get it. Yeah. I dude, I love Ray Lovelock in this movie. I think he's such a magnificent bastard at the beginning of the film, but he kind of softens, you know, to to Edna during the course of it. And I I, I think you can actually see it happen and I enjoy that progression of his character. Yeah, at first I was like, "Oh, he Russell Brand looks like him. Oh, nope, don't say that. <laughs> yeah, David even mentioned, uh, we were talking on WhatsApp, and even mentioned uh, Ray Lovelock as a Russell Brand uh, 0.0, I think he called him. <laughs> yeah, this guy, uh, he's like, I guess this was a very popular look back in the day. Um, oh, dude, he looks great in this movie, by the way. I love every outfit dude. that he wears. That leather jacket, that hat, the glasses, the scarf when he's riding his motorcycle. He looks awesome. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. So next up is uh, Jerry Orbach, right? Yeah, uh, Philip Baker Hall as well. <laughs> um, tell me I'm wrong and I'll shoot you. Uh, Arthur Kennedy. And Arthur Kennedy is... Uh, I mean, he's 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 one of those like legendary actors, very similar to like, I don't know, yeah. I've, just think pulp '60s and '70s actors. Yeah, and on the documentary, uh, they mentioned he was like a five-time Academy nominee or something like that. And at the time of this filming, he was kind of like not as popular anymore and he's kind of falling into drinking and everything um but the director kind of sort of explained to him his character and sort of got got into his head and then i think he turns in a fantastic performance in this film i mean he's one of it's one of those stories that you hear with um a lot of actors of his era where in their twilight they start doing more movies that maybe they wouldn't consider back in the day like horror films yeah yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I was going to mention, too, that this, this movie has a kind of a similar eeriness to Horror Express. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is something we covered way back in season one. Yes. If you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to that episode. Yeah. Because it's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, he, he was in Lawrence of Arabia. And he died in 1990 at the age of 75. And the last movie he did was called Grandpa. Because <laughs> he was probably the grandpa. <laughs> but uh, a lot of if you look up his if you look up his filmography, there's a lot of Italian movies on there. And so that just kind of goes to show you they're like, hey, we'll give you a ton of money. Come over here and, you know, do three days of filming and you're done. Yeah. Why not? And I mean, if he's turning in a, a performance like this, I'll watch it all, man. Right. Exactly. And I mean. He's great, and what happens to him at the end is even greater. Yes, very much so. <laughs> uh, who else do you want to mention on here? Um, yeah, that's the thing. Like, you know, Detective Kinsey, you know, I, I, I call him out. Obviously, we know who he is in the, the character in the movie, but he doesn't really have an IMDb picture. Most of these guys are all, like, Italian actors. Uh, I, the guy who plays Constable Craig, uh, Giorgio, Trustini, you know, like, they're all in these movies, like Zach said earlier. We can't even pronounce the names, basically, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't. Um, I mean, look, those are the three main leads in this film. Uh and I think more so it's important to point out like the director and the writer and the, like you said, special effects. So yeah. why don't we start with the director, Jorge yeah. Grau, who passed away in 2018 at the age of 88. 
he's done quite a few movies, directed quite a few movies, and it's a wide range, you know. Um, nothing to me that necessarily stands out outside of Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, a.k.a. Manchester Mystery House in Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. <clears throat> um, and, you know, I'm not familiar with his filmography uh, outside of this movie, but what he does in this movie is, like, if you if you did one movie and this was that movie... I think you should be proud of your work. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you there. He, like I said, I watched the documentary. He he's interviewed on it, so it was it was you know taken filmed before he passed away. Yeah, and like you know he wanted to he did a lot of art house stuff prior to this. This was kind of like his first sort of proper film, a uh, horror film. He did the Legend of Blood Castle and and Violent Bloodbath, but they were kind of these weird not quite supernatural horror or whatever, but he kind of like got his feet wet and before doing Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, a.k.a. Manchester Mork. And by the way, guys and gals, yes, this movie has a thousand different names. Yes, it's listed on IMDb as Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, but we are going to refer to it as The Living Dead of Manchester Mork because that's the title I've always known it as. Um, that's kind of the American title, and that's the title of the Blu-ray that we have and everything. So just going to kind of keep it like that. But this movie's renowned for having like 10 different titles all over the you know the world, basically. I think that's what been one of the issues with people not seeing it because, you know, people go... One, I think the name of the title kind of hurts it. It's so long. And two, because it has a couple different titles, people would be hard pressed to like actively seek it out. I don't know. Yeah. This is my theory. Yeah, no, I, I think that, yeah, I think the title is, it's interesting. I mean, I personally like the titles. I actually probably like the Let Sleeping Corpses Lie title a little bit better, but again, yeah. it's just, it's burned into my brain as the living dead of Manchester Mork. And he, they were clearly trying to tap into the whole night of the living dead thing. Like that's what this was originally like pitched to him as by the producers who had the script right. and everything that this is like, they want this to be their UK colorized version of Night of the Living Dead. Well, I'm happy with that. Yeah, me too. Me too. For writing, there's actually four people. Uh, two are uncredited, so we won't talk about them. But Sandro Continenza and Marcello Cossic. Cossic. Uh, John Lev. Um, <laughs> Sandro did the 1978 version of Inglorious Bastards. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, that's the reason that, you know, I think uh, Tarantino had to change it to Bastards with an E because of the, the copyright name with this. Right. And then Marcello, well, he did the screenplay for Tex and the Lord of the Deep, which sounds really cool. <laughs> it's, a spaghetti, it's a spaghetti Western fantasy movie that that blends magic and mythology. Ooh, Ooh. With six guns and stagecoaches. Okay. I'm it came a- out in 1985. I'm on board for that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Why is this not available? And, wh- I mean, let's go watch this now. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> Tex and the Lord of the Deep. It's based on the adventures of hero text from the comic strip by Bonelli. Okay. That makes sense. It makes sense that that's a comic book. Okay. It looks phenomenal. Corey, you had mentioned you wanted to... Bring up the special effects guy, right? Yeah. Special? The special effects. Um, Yes. So Giannetto De Rossi uh, did all the gore for the film, the blood and gore. 
And we saw him, we saw his work in Lucio Fulci's Zombie. So this was almost like a precursor to what he's going to perfect in that film. And I think that while the gore is kind of, um, it's, it's, this movie's kind of a slow burn and there's not a lot of huge gory set pieces, but that's what kind of makes the gore that does happen so shocking because it's so few and far between, but they don't right. hold back when it does happen. No, it, it does. It actually fits into the mold that I prefer where it's the first three quarters are slow burn. And then the final third act is just like hit you over the head. Bang, bang, bang. Yeah, I love movies like this where they just kind of like load everything up story-wise and then just shove it all in your face in the last 15 minutes of the film. Right. I just want to point out, too, the composer Giuliano Sorghini. You know, he's got quite a few movies under his belt, 14, that he he did the score for. Um, Some of them are cult. Some of them are The Beast in Heat, The Return of the Exorcist, and Holocaust 2, The Revenge. Um, but his score in this is fantastic. Yeah, and he might not have a lot under his belt that I even know, but I think this score is amazing. Agreed. Agreed. And agreed. Okay. Well, buddy, um, anybody else left uh, on the cast and crew that we want to discuss? I mean, some of the, the actors we can always just talk about you know when we see them and whatnot um but yeah like like i said you know the person who plays martin katie you know i look them up and i don't i can't pronounce half the movies that they're in and i don't even recognize any of them anyways yeah i'll simply say if you like heroin you like men unshaved men with uh giant gaping uh open wounds on their chests then this is the movie for you Sergeant of Christ and Saints are out of fashion. Satan's all the rage these days. Listen, boy, you keep getting on my nerves and I'm gonna give you another kind of house to look after. One with lots of bars in the windows. We'd better reinforce that door. Take the lamp. I can just imagine the sergeant's face when he finds out message for you. Look, I know it sounds silly, but is it possible? I mean, could a film fail to catch an image for any reason? Well, a ghost, maybe.
The movie opens with George, played by Ray Lovelock, gathering various items from his antiques and modern art store and putting them in a bag, then closing up shop for the holidays. He gets on his motorcycle and drives away. Back in the store, the camera dollies in on a weird painting as ominous music plays. The camera stays on the painting as an image of the zombie Guthrie is superimposed over it and then fades to a very cool 1950s-style title card, The Living Dead at Manchester Morgue. Yeah, I love the title card. I mean, it's it's not overly flashy or anything, but I love the way this movie opens. Me too. Um, and then we get these real cool, like circular effects or something. It's, it's all, it's got some trippy visuals to it. Yeah. And, uh, so real quick, I'm going to just set up, um, he's going to drive through a city. I believe this is supposed to be Manchester. Although in my breakdown, I think I called it London. Although David probably can correct me. Maybe Manchester is a part of London. I, or I'm not sure, but I think it was also filmed in Glasgow, uh, because Glasgow, Glasgow, um, because they needed it to be very grungy. And at the time when the director went to go scout Manchester, it wasn't grungy. They, they, they had already started the process of sort of cleaning things up. So Glasgow was where I've said it like three different ways. Now Glasgow was where they filmed this whole beginning part. Well, I think Manchester is a part of England because London's a part of England. Okay. So. Okay, but, uh, Manchester, yeah. England, England, across the Atlantic Sea. And the only reason I kind of, a couple times in the movie, I think they refer to him coming from London or something. So that, so I, I assumed all this was supposed to be London, but listening to the filmmaker, I think all this is supposed to be Manchester. Okay. <laughs> Sex, like I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> Cut to a montage of George driving his motorcycle. And this is where I wrote down through London but I think it's supposed to be Manchester, as funky music plays and the credits roll. There's a scene of a fully naked female stripper running through the street, but no one in the cars are paying attention to her. George does, though. And this is kind of like, um, the director was also saying, this was kind of like a, of the time, there was a, like a lot of streaking at the time going on at, you know, football games or, you know, soccer games and stuff like that because it was, people were protesting the, you know, sort of, the lifestyle, how, how things are devolving and everything. I, I guess I wasn't around at the time. I think also people ignoring it is, is kind of a common, it's kind of a commentary on what happens later in the movie, but it's up, applicable to today as well. People don't care unless it affects them personally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, obviously it was a very clear choice that he was showing people in their cars, not looking at her, you know, because they're yeah. just wrapped up in their own daily lives. Right. George eventually makes it out of the city and into the countryside. And this is where the film really wants the viewer to see the contrast between the ugly city and the beautiful countryside. And the countryside is gorgeous. They filmed it at a time where it's very lush and green with a lot of rolling hills. And right. yeah, it's, 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 and this is, We've talked about it before, Zach. Every film has a thesis that they put into the beginning of the movie. And, I mean, I'd say it's going to be more in your face later. But this is the thesis right now. The thesis is is that the countryside is beautiful, the cities are gross, and we should preserve the country as much as possible. Agreed. Okay. (laughs) Cut to Edna, Christina Galbo, sitting in her car at a gas station and paying the attendant for the petrol think that's what the brits call gasoline right petrol 
<laughs> we are going to get so railed by people. <laughs> I know the Australians call it guzzoline, according to Mad Max. <laughs> I was I'm I'm not going to say anymore. Say it, buddy. Say it. That's what she said. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> guzzoline that cock. <laughs> wow. <laughs> George pulls up on his motorcycle to the pump behind her and tells the old man to fill it up. He walks over to a snack stand and grabs a can of something and pops the top. And notice that thing's not in a cooler, so that thing's probably warm as hell. Right. Just then he hears a crash and turns around to see that Edna has gone in reverse and hit his bike. Oh, Edna. She apologizes to George and says she must be a little tired from the long drive. George gathers up the items that fell from his bag and asks the attendant how long it'll take to repair the bike. The old man says he needs a new wheel, but they'll have to get that from Glasgow, which I guess that solidifies better that that's where he was coming from. Right. Or, I don't know, Manchester, Glasgow, London. (laughs) Manchester, England, (laughs) England. Shout out to Treat Williams. And since the weekend, big rips. And since it's the weekend, the earliest it'll be is Monday evening. George looks annoyed, as he should be. Right. And he says, I'll see you on Monday then, and don't bugger me about. He then asks Edna if she if she's going to Windermere. She says she's not going to the town per se, but nearby. George says that she'll take him there. It's the least she can do for him. Edna agrees, and George jumps in the driver's seat of the car and says he'll drive. I mean, we don't want to go all the way in reverse now, do we? So... <laughs> So, dude, this is an interesting meet-cute as opposed to, like, other movies that you know, 99% of the time they see each other and they fall immediately in love. This is a meet-cute where they hate each other at first. Yeah, well, rightfully so. I mean, she ran over his bike, and, and he's also, like, kind of a cocky guy, thinks he's cool because he is. Yeah, because he's hella cool, dude. With his cool jacket and shirt and hat and such. And his scarf and everything. Yep, his beard and his glasses and his hat and his boots and his pants. And his hair, his beautifully coiffed hair. It's, oh, gorgeous. He's got a banging haircut. (laughs) It's quite dreamy, man. He's a dream weaver. (laughs) I believe Ray Lovelock is the one. I can never, ever hear that song the same again after uh, the convent. Thank you, Rob, for that. Thank you, Rob. (laughs) <laughs> hashtag show me a dancing nun a dancing demon nun <laughs> Corey just nodded his head because i didn't even acknowledge it. i was like uh-huh yeah as george is and this is gonna be something that i repeat over and over again in my description as george is driving like a bat out of hell through the countryside edna lights up a cigarette for herself george takes it out of her mouth and says thank you <laughs> edna lights up another one I love that. I love that little... He's such a dick. They officially introduce themselves, and George says, Hmm, you look like an Edna. He asks if she's up here from London for the weekend. Edna says her sister has a cottage at Southgate. As they are driving along a small country road, a large box truck with the words City of Manchester Morgue written on the back hogs the entire street and impedes their progress with its slow but much safer speed. George kicks it into low gear and flies around the truck while honking his horn. 
He then flips the driver off and speeds away. I love how Edna is not even phased by this. Because she's like self-medicated. And a sweet uh, Mini Cooper too, by the way. Uh, Yeah, nothing can really move. Yeah, I used to have a Mini Cooper and that thing gripped the road like a mofo. Dude, this thing is like, he's driving this motherfucker. He's driving this motherfucker like he stole it. Yeah, uh, well, you know, yeah. He sort of does. Maybe Edna did, and that's why she's in such a odd space. <laughs> it took me fucking four took takes. Eight takes. Eight takes to get that Jesus out. Jesus Christ. Uh, Zach's, see me when I audition. Zach's got this look on his face like, fucking kill me. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. This is something, something odd in the embers today. I don't know what's going on. Uh, Edna, Edna, looking way too calm after that display, asks, what's so important in Windermere? Windermere. George says, Beautiful country, low industry, in an isolated house, all mine, where from Saturday to Monday, I'll listen to the grass grow while I smoke some grass. (laughs) A whole big bag of it. (laughs) As they drive past a fork in the road, Edna pleads with George to stop the car and turn around. I must be in Southgate by this evening. If I take you to Windermere, I'll be late. George asks what's so important in Southgate. Edna says she has to see her sister before, and she kind of trails off. She says she has a suggestion. Take her to her sister's house and keep the car and go to Windermere. She'll send someone for it. That's pretty trusting of her. Right. George says then he'll be late. He has an appointment with his friends to fix up the house. Edna says, please, and George relents. Okay, show me the way. You know what else is in Southgate? What's that? Uh, Southgate, California is the home of Paul London's Kayfabe Academy. Paul Ah. London, of course, being from Territory Marks. And our new show, 80s Kids Unite, which will, I believe, be premiering uh, a week after this episode airs. So, I think, timeline-wise, right? Uh, Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think that's where it's slotted, yeah. 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 So if you are a fan of 80s nostalgia and you want us to bring up a topic on 80s Kids Unite, sign up to our Patreon, patreon.com slash podcasting after dark. Join today and be a part of the 80s Kids Unite fun with the Night Boys. (laughs) Nice plug, bro. I did not see where that's that was where it was going. Southgate. It's true. Southgate is where Kayfabe Academy, Paul London's wrestling school is. So if you're interested in becoming a professional wrestler, uh, go to his Instagram, Kayfabe Academy, and you can find out more there. I've been to it. It's amazing. I know. I saw the pictures. It looks like a lot of yeah. fun. Yeah. 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 Where the hell's sure. the records room? Sure. <laughs> Dr. Rosenrosen. Hello, love. Back to the movie. <laughs> George kicks the car, car in gear and flies down the road and through an empty town at breakneck speed. By the way, throughout this movie, kind of pretty much moving forward, uh, I will be referring to george as the dante of uh of of this movie because oftentimes he's like i'm not even supposed to be here <laughs> like jesus dude stop being dante you're right dude i didn't even sort of put that together but you're he is the fucking dante of this movie <laughs> so that makes uh, edna the randall huh yeah yes yeah and martin and katie are the jay and silent bob so pretty much George and Edna end up in a different part of the countryside as they drive past a castle on the side of the hill that also has a church and a cemetery attached to it. They keep driving until the road dead ends by a stream. They are now lost. 
Edna says she's only been to her sister's place once, and all these country roads look the same. <laughs> Sounds like an indictment on the countryside. <laughs> and all these place, all these roads look the same. Boring. Yeah, Jesus. Okay, chill down. George lets out a sigh. Give me a British sigh. <sighs> perfect. That was actually perfect. Then looks over and sees a sign for a farm just over the hill. He tells her to wait in the car and he'll go ask for directions. He takes the car keys with him and says, Not that I don't trust you, but I really can't risk you leaving me here on foot, can I? Don't get your knickers in a twist. I'll be back soon. Why is it too like there's always a question at the end? I'll be back soon. I'll, Sound I'll good? Be back soon? Soon? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ron Burgundy? Douchebag says what? <laughs> what? <laughs> As George is walking across this cool man-made rock bridge that crosses the stream, Edna tells him to ask for the Madison's house. She then looks at her watch and gets out of the car to have a smoke. Have a drag, will you? We see George walking up a steep hill into a farm. He yells for someone but doesn't get a response. He then hears a high-pitched noise and looks over at the farmer's field and sees a red tractor with some high-tech-looking machinery attached to it. Two men in white outfits are talking to the farmer. Yeah, my dog did not like that, by the way. Not like that at all. There's a couple times where the sound mixing, the hum and the high-pitchedness is kind of, I think it blew out my speakers a little bit. Yep. Blew out my dog's ears. <laughs> That's... Better than blowing out her colon. True. True, love. True. <laughs> Cut to a close-up of the scene, and we see Agricultural Department Midland Area Experimental Section written on the side of the machine, and the two operators in white are showing the farmer how it works. One of the workers hands the farmer a device that looks like a metal, a metal detector, but with an antenna at the end of it, uh, instead of a round disc. For the, the pre- I'll try it. For the prescribed area, keep it on an emission of 17 megahertz. Try it. <laughs> David's going to kill us after this episode. David's going to be like, Oh, look here, mate. Come <laughs> on now. <laughs> no. <laughs> if you want to know what David sounds like, sign up to our Patreon and you can listen to David. David Irons is all over our Patreon. Patreon.com slash podcasting after dark. And as much as I want people to sign up to Patreon, you can also go and listen to Demons 1 and Demons 2, uh, full breakdowns where Dave, David was on that. But yeah, no, he's been on a couple episodes of The uh, Carpenter Factor. He's been on a couple episodes of Wrap Up. Um, we have a lot of guests over on Wrap Up and everything. So yeah, guys and gals, for just a mere $2 a month, you can get uh, Wrap Up After Dark. And for $5 a month, you can get that and The Carpenter Factor. And what it's going to turn into is our next auteur. Don't say what it is, Corey. That's if you right. want to you... find out before we announce it, go sign up to our Patreon. That's right. There you go. All right. No more Patreon plugs. <laughs> for, uh, at least for the next 15 minutes. There you go. Zach's like, Daddy needs a new pair of shoes, baby. <laughs> Come on. The farmer takes the device and aims it at the grass as he's walking into the field. George walks up to them and asks for directions, but the farmer tells him to hold on a second. George asks what the device is used for, and the farmer says it's supposed to destroy insects and parasites, but it's still experimental. George shakes his head and says, 
I'd send it right back where it came from and keep the insects and parasites nature gave you. Just another machine to pollute the earth. And this right here, Zach, that right there is, is the thesis of the film. Absolutely. That's true. The technician in white, uh, later on I'm just going to pretty much just trim it to technicians. Uh, The technician in white takes offense at the remark. He says that they are here to demonstrate to the farmers that this is a viable alternative to pesticides. The other technician says that the machine works solely on ultrasonic radiation. There's not a chemical involved. The farmer says that if George doesn't like progress, those technicians are not the men to talk to. He then gives the city slicker directions to the Madison Cottage using trees and landmarks. George tells him he's used to traffic lights and street signs and to go over it again. The farmer deduces he's from the city, given that you don't see too many young fellas dressed like George in the country. Yeah, just like a fucking hunky boy. Yeah, hunky boy. Wait till they... But wait till he gets described by somebody later and it's... Well, not something we say anymore, or something we ever should have said to begin with. (laughs) Y'all right. (laughs) Why do I sound like Rip Taylor? Where's my confetti? Uh, Hello, boys. Hello, boys. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, man, I don't know what episode we talked about that on, but uh, if, if if any of our listeners out there know what we're talking about, well... You've been listening to this show for a long time then. I used to uh, sing this song with my buddies, Matt and Terry, back in the day. And I'd go, hello, Frisco, open your golden gate. (laughs) (laughs) Man. And throw confetti. Of course, of course. Down in the valley below, we see Edna walking by the stream as she waits for George to return. Beautiful shot, by the way. Yes, very much a beautiful location. I would yeah. imagine it's it's hard to not make this location look beautiful. Yeah. It would take a special kind of cinematographer to fuck this up. I'm sure someone's done that. <laughs> and they're like, come on, man. This scene right, this scene filmed itself. <laughs> and there sucks. Because you know what? Yeah, a good cinematographer will make a beautiful location look even better. Yes. The camera cuts to a POV shot of something or someone watching her and making ghoulish breathing sounds. Sorry, I had to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Edna thinks she hears something and turns around but doesn't see anything. She hears the ghoulish breathing again and turns around to see a tall, slender man in a suit dripping wet with a rope around his upper torso. He's standing about 30 yards from Edna. We later find out this is the zombie Guthrie, played by Fernando Hilbeck. Guthrie stops walking and slowly turns towards Edna. We see he has red eyes. And it's cool, real quick, I'm going to refer to the zombies having red eyes, but they're not like normal pupils. They're almost like this weird shattered look to it. Yeah, similar, for some reason it reminded me of Horror Express. With the red, yeah, with the red eyes, right? Yeah, and maybe that's also like the the gaunt, pale face with the severe facial hair. That doesn't hurt, right? With the similarities. No, it makes it even better and creepier. Yeah. yeah. Something about that look, though, back in the day, used to freak me the hell out. Just gaunt, pale, with black facial, like overly facial hair, where the hair just grows up above your cheek line. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I, I call those my werewolf hairs, and I, I, I shave them down to the beard, you know? Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I, I think that's changed in the past 30-plus years. Back in the 60s and 70s, people, just, people didn't care. Manscaping was not a thing. It was just no. like, let it go, let it flow. That's why they all had unibrows and, yeah, the, the hair that goes, to their, goes almost up to their eyeballs and everything. I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, and there's a couple dudes in this at the end where I'm just like, oh, man, I get it. But still, it's gross. <laughs> I get it. You're Italian. My God. Shame. I get it. You're Italian. You're hairy. I get it. I'm, look, guys, I'm hairy too, but still. <laughs> yeah, but you shave. How I do, do I know I'm, this? I'm, <laughs> you know, you know everything, and you've seen everything. Sadly, I do. <laughs> Guthrie stops walking and slowly turns towards Edna. We, oh, I said, yeah, we see he has red eyes. He quickly walks towards Edna as she jumps back in the car. She reaches for the keys, but remembers George took them. This is not going to be the only time that car keys come into play. Right. Or or the lack thereof, I should say. Right. Guthrie reaches into the passenger window to grab Edna as she gets out of the car and runs towards the farm. So, sorry, that's a little clunky. She gets out of one side as he's grabbing through the other, um, the window. She slips on some rocks and falls into the stream and screams for George as she comes as he comes walking down the path with the with the farmer. Edna runs into George's arms and tells him that the that a man tried to attack her by the car and he's following her. This and so this movie is kind of of its time because as much of an asshole George is to her, she still when when situation gets scary, she runs to him and cowers behind him and yeah, and the guys are kind of like, oh, just you know, she's got the hysterics, love. You know, it's it's a very, it's not, it's not as demeaning as other films of this ilk, but it definitely doesn't prop Edna up or anything. Nope. I mean, I don't want to. Yep. No, you say what you want to say. Say it. Like every good woman, you cower for a man. <laughs> oh, my God. I have to cut that. I have to cut that. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> and canceled. And canceled. Uh, I'm keeping that in. No, you're not. No, I, I can't say what I was going to. If you want to know what I was going to say, sign up to our Patreon. <laughs> and, you know, and I'll reveal it all on the Patreon. Uh. Behind a paywall. <laughs> you gotta pay me to say the things I think about at night. Good lord. <laughs> I don't want to pay you to hear those thoughts. Yes, you can do. I, can I pay you to not hear those you, thoughts? You get them for free. I do. I get them for free. <laughs> the two, oh, the two men don't see the mysterious attacker. Nope. Edna describes the man as tall and wearing a dark suit, and he was dripping wet. George remarks that she's wet, too. The farmer jokingly says that it must be Guthrie the loon. When George asks about Guthrie, the farmer says he was only joking. Guthrie the tramp is dead. He drowned himself in the stream about a week ago. Seems to have been a suicide. George chuckles. And now he's a ghost. Edna tells them he tried to get into the car and kill her. The two men dismiss her, (laughs) as men of that era are wont to do. Yep. Cut to Martin, Jose Lefonte, developing pictures of flowers in his dark room. He walks out into his office to hang dry them, and we see a picture of his wife, Katie, Janine Maestro, uh, Mastre, 
naked in the bathroom and looking like she's scared of him. She has some really heavy hangers. <laughs> Zach did a double take. <laughs> and you can see them very clearly in, in on the Blu-ray. Yeah. This movie does not paint people particularly pretty. No. No, no, they don't. But they don't give her like any make her like scantily clad in the movie itself but she's definitely naked in these pictures martin leaves the cottage and walks outside it's nighttime now as he does he hears footsteps running by and follows them to a smaller shed house out back i didn't really know what to call this it's bigger than a it's bigger than what us americans think is a shed but it's smaller than a house it's the torture room love it's the room that we torture people in it's the room where they keep their blow-up raft in. Yes. Yes. And the heroin. And and the heroin, love. Actually, the, the and raft... And the strawberries. Has, yes, and the strawberries. And the, the raft has heroin in it, love. David right now is going, This accent's much better than the one you do for me. It is. It actually is. Because I've heard them all. And you're going to hear more of them. He sees the door slam shut and calls out for Katie. Inside the shed, and I'll just refer to it as a shed now, Katie is reaching for something on the shelf, but then turns around and looks frightened when she sees Martin walk in. She hands him a thing of strawberries and says she wanted to bake a pie to celebrate her sister's visit. Martin examines the little container. He's looking for something, but we, as the viewer, aren't sure what it is. Katie asks if he's finished. Can she go now? Martin says it's hard for him, too. She shoots back that he's that he's making her life miserable. First, you keep me here like a prisoner for a year. And now I know why you asked my sister to come here. I know where you want to send me, but I'll never go. Do you hear me? Never. She runs out of the shed. and Martin goes after her. He meets her at the doorway to the main house and Katie is crying. Martin pauses, then says, we'll do what you want. Now, please get a hold of yourself. He says he's going to set up the camera in flashes for the last series of pictures, then he'll come straight back. Martin asks if she'll be all right alone, but Katie just keeps weeping. Martin walks off into the darkness, and Katie stops crying as if it were all an act. Now, I want to say, Zach, the first time you're watching this movie, you don't really understand what's happening, and I think one thing that kind of informs one way of thinking is that Martin is very... His features are very, sh not sharp, but they're, you expect this guy to be playing a villain in like a James Bond movie or something. He looks like he's playing the bad guy in this. The irony is, is that he's, I think he's actually trying to do, he's trying to help his wife because she's a heroin addict that we don't know that right now. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. But it's an interesting bait and switch. Yeah, it is. It, it, it makes it more interesting that way. Mm -hmm. He is unfortunate looking, though. <laughs> this balding hair and his thick eyebrows. I'm telling you. They're like, we only had a budget for one good looking person in this movie. And it's <laughs> Ray Lovelock. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's because Ray Lovelock is in the film with Martin that, like, it just makes Martin look so much more ugly. Live like a cop, die like a man. <laughs> what a great title. That is pretty damn good. 
Cut to George driving the car and Edna asking if he believes her about the man attacking her. She didn't imagine it. George says, Methinks the lady doth protest too much. What a bastard. Edna says she resents that. <laughs> George stops the car and says, Listen, love, you've already ruined enough of my day. Do you want to fight now? George looks around then blames Edna for them being lost again. And then George follows up with, I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> Dude, I'm ne- next time I watch this movie, I will insert Dante in my head. Because, yeah, there is that vibe. A lot of this movie is George being like, yeah, I'm not even supposed to fucking be here. I'm supposed to be at the house relaxing. This is the exact opposite of what he how he wanted to spend his weekend. Edna caused his death. Oh, shit. Spoiler. <laughs> you look like an Edna. That's like the harshest insult you can actually say to somebody. Edna's a terrible name, by the way. Yeah, it's like it's a grandma name. Yeah. Cut to Martin's camera on a tripod, automatically snapping photos as the flash illuminates the dark countryside. There's a beautiful like stream and a waterfall in the background. It's picturesque. I mean, Christ, dude, if that's where you lived, I yeah, I wouldn't be addicted to heroin. Go enjoy the beauty out back. What's the matter with you? What do you mean you're addicted to heroin? Have you looked out the window? <laughs> that was hands down in, in almost five years of doing this, the dumbest thing I've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> you're welcome. I mean, I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> you look like that. a Corey. <laughs> God damn it. I do. I do. God damn it. <laughs> Back in the shed, we see from Guthrie's POV that he's looking around and breathing heavily. Just then, Katie walks through the door and goes to the stash of heroin she had hidden by the strawberries earlier. She places a bent spoon over an open candle and pours the powder in. She's about to inject herself when she hears a loud screeching coming from the other side of the shed. She walks over to investigate the noise and zombie Guthrie comes out of the darkness. That sounds cooler than what happens. He actually comes out from behind a, an inflatable raft. Right. Since he's blocking the only door, Katie has to break the back window and jump out. As she does, Guthrie grabs her sleeve and tears it. Katie yells for Martin as she goes running towards the waterfall, but when the camera cu- cuts back to her husband checking his camera, we hear that the sound of the waterfall is drowning out her cries for help. I like that little touch. Like that. It's realistic. Yeah, it is. I like it, too. And more so since, you know, I've hiked to actual waterfalls here in Oregon. And whenever you guys come up and visit, I'll take you guys to one. Um, And, yeah, they are fucking loud when you're by them. What are you implying? (laughs) I'll take you guys to a waterfall. I love how Corey just he's like setting up a death and a kill. And then, you know, (laughs) and when you guys come up here to visit, I'm going to take you there. Katie tries hiding in some bushes as the ghoul walks by. It doesn't work because Guthrie's mama didn't raise no fool, and Katie goes back to running down the hill where Martin is setting up his next shot. This time he hears his wife screaming. Martin turns around and sees Guthrie attack Katie, but just then the automated flash from the camera startles the red-eyed zombie. The husband springs into action as Katie breaks free, then clashes with Guthrie. The ghoul gets the upper hand and takes Martin to the ground. 
The man desperately grabs a rock and bashes Guthrie's head in, but the undead tramp takes the blows to the head like a champ and then strangles Martin to death. Although later we find out that Guthrie actually caved Martin's chest in, but the effects didn't really, I think, show that. Yeah, yeah. All this time, the automatic camera is taking pictures. Guthrie stands up and turns his sights back onto Katie. She screams and goes running back to the house. Just then, George and Edna drive up, and the headlights from the car blind Guthrie and force him to retreat. Edna gets out and consoles her sister and asks where Martin is. Katie says he's by the stream, and George goes to investigate. He looks startled by what he finds. So what are your thoughts on sort of all this? Like, first off, things happen pretty quickly in the movie. Like, things get going. Yeah, the pacing is quick, even though it's it feels slow at times the pacing still over it, it 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 goes pretty quickly i love this i love the the setup with the flashing pictures and that that's going to come back in a little bit too super moody creepy has definite shades to night of the living dead homages to night of the night of the living dead and what do you think of uh, Guthrie as like a zombie like he he can take you know hitting hit him in the head doesn't kill him he's not he doesn't quite run but he also doesn't shamble either yeah and we soon find out that well we won't soon find out we will find out that these zombies what brings them to life what causes them to live it's not a necessity for flesh it's 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 a it's it's an alarm essentially um so it's just a different it's another spin on the zombie genre you know yeah and this yeah and this movie never got brought up you know when 28 days later came out and they made the mistake i still think it's a mistake that they didn't call them zombies they called them you know like i forget what they what were they yeah yeah some stupid term you know um and George Romero is, of course, like, well, those aren't zombies. And like, well, dude, you didn't write the freaking book on zombies. I'm, I know you created amazing, iconic zombies, but you didn't create the zombie, you know, and you can do whatever you want with it. I know that was always like a sticking point. Um, so this is just another variation on the on the the fairy tale, the fable, you know. And I know you and I are both uh, very big fans of the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake. Um, and also of 28 days later and everything and, and whatnot. And yeah, I have no problem with running zombies and actually I find them scarier because their, you know, lust for flesh outweighs my lust for life and they'll win. And I I also get the appeal of the, or the fear. Like I, I get the, what's scary about also the, the slow moving creeping death, but man, I I don't know. I I like the ones in this where they, they kind of move pretty quickly and they're kind of on people pretty fast. They do. Did did you did you ever see the movie um, Plague of the Zombies? It came out in 1966. It's a hammer horror film. Is that the one where they're all in like hoods and they look very like decayed, almost skeleton esque? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I've never so. seen it, but it's it's on my high on the watch list. Or is that Tomb of the Blind Dead you're thinking of? I think I'm thinking of Tomb of the Blind Dead. Yeah. Uh, Plague of the Zombies is a hammer horror film. Okay. And Anchor Bay put out the clamshell VHS of it back in the day, but. I highly recommend that. It's just another variation on the zombie genre that people don't talk about. 
it was that was from the 70s correct 60s 66 oh, 60s okay so post still post night of the living dead but pre-dawn of the dead right yeah because night of the living dead was 68 oh okay okay so it's right. pre okay all right cool interesting all right yeah maybe i'll bump that one up uh see if i can find it somewhere i'm sure there's somebody's got a good blu-ray out right bump that in the night <laughs> bump in the night god That's i love what... that song so good you're welcome <laughs> Hey everybody, Corey here. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be right back after these short messages. Have you been wondering where's the beef? Well, on our podcast, Throwback Trivia Takedown, you might just find that out, as well as some other things about the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're a nostalgic-based trivia show that pits two challengers head-to-head in a duel of the decades, with categories ranging from movies, TV, and music, to slang, food, and fashion, you're sure to get the best in retro-themed trivia. So strap on your jelly shoes, grab a surge, and walk like an Egyptian to your favorite podcast app and check out Throwback Trivia Takedown. I heard even Mikey likes it. Hey, everybody. I'm Tim. And I'm Dean. And we're the hosts of Talking Back. We're a retro-based podcast covering movies, comics, video games, and more. Check us out every Monday where we hit the rewind button and dig into some of our favorite content from the past. We like to keep things fun, lighthearted, and informative. Do you feel like you need more nostalgia in your life? Then check out Talking Back. We're available everywhere podcasts are found. And now, back to the show. Cut to the next day, and the area is now a crime scene. There are multiple officers and forensics personnel uh, photographing the dead body and looking for clues. We meet the inspector, and that's all he's ever referred to as the either the inspector or sergeant, but I call him the inspector pretty much the entire time. I call him an and, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> or call him Jerry Orbach. Yes. <laughs> or call him Bookman because so here's the thing. He looks you mean like Philip Jer- Baker Hall. <laughs> he looks like Jerry. He looks like Jerry Orbach, but he has the the intense personality of library cop Bookman, played by Philip Baker Hall from Seinfeld. Yeah. yeah. He's he's he has no chill. <laughs> the inspector has no chill, and he's always at a ten. No chill. One of the forensic personnel says he's never seen anything like it. His whole torso has been caved in. Every bone smashed. And I, I got to say, I, I dig that they told us that. I kind of wish we saw it. It's no big deal that we didn't. But I do dig that that's technically what happened to Martin. Right. Yeah, I agreed. He asks Constable Craig, who low-key is one of my favorite characters in the movie. <laughs> George he is. Tresini. He, he does not utter one of my favorite lines in this but we'll get to that in a minute okay <laughs> he asks constable craig if he's notified headquarters craig says he has but they're very busy in the morning the inspector tells craig to button up his jacket it's a uniform not a pair of pajamas wait hold on how do we do an irish accent it's a you it nope it's a but b- b- nope that's not it hold on hi cha 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 nope that's scottish right yeah it's a uniform under jacket there you go all right, you may have to do the inspector stuff, too. No, you're doing it. You just, you got to do it. Okay. It's it's a uniform, not a jacket. As the inspector walks up <laughs> the hill, he's greeted by an irate George. Now, look here, Sergeant. I'm not even supposed to be here. To- no, <laughs> I've got other things to do. You can't keep me here all day long, love. 
I've told you, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to do with this. The inspector replies, "Well, there's been a murder. It's a funny thing, you know, but nobody ever has anything to do with it." The inspector tells us somewhere between a Scottish and an Irish accent. And a little hint of a Pakistani. <laughs> The inspector tells another officer to continue questioning George, then walks away. George looks annoyed, then looks over at the crime scene and sees Martin's camera being taken away as evidence. The inspector goes to the front of the house where all the police cars are parked and asks another officer if anyone heard anything. He says no, but their neighbor said that there was bad blood between Martin and Katie. The neighbor says he saw them fighting a few times. The inspector tells the officer to bring the neighbor in for questioning. Then he walks into the house. Ah. I say, I say, mind your own fucking business, neighbor. I seen it. I seen it. I seen it with my own eyes. POV George be like, I'm not supposed to be here today. Damn it, bugger. <laughs> POV, it's actually Guthrie. That's the neighbor that says there's bad blood between the two. Guthrie's like, it wasn't me. It was them. <laughs> she caved his chest in. Right. Katie's sitting on the couch while Edna makes <laughs> makes while Edna pours tea for her. Of course, of course. <laughs> Detective Kinsey, uh, Aldo Massesio, is sitting on a chair next to her. The inspector asks Kinsey what she said, and the detective says she's very consistent. She insists it was a man dressed in black. Edna says it was the same man that attacked her earlier. Kinsey doesn't believe them. Edna asks why would she make up such a thing. The inspector says it's simple. To back up your sister's story, the inspector looks around. The inspector <laughs> looks around Martin's office and finds the photos he took of Katie nude and scared in the bathroom. He asks what the pictures are about, but she doesn't remember. He says, "This isn't the first time you and your husband had a fight, was it?" The truth is coming out. I do hate some of Katie's reactions in this. Well, she is a heroin addict. <laughs> I love it. Zach gave me this look of like, cut her a break, man. <laughs> she is a heroin addict. Damn, buddy. Sorry. Sorry. That would hit close to home. <laughs> I mean, for crying out loud, she is a heroin addict for crying out loud. <laughs> Edna knows what the inspector is getting at and reminds the inspector of the fact that Martin had his chest crushed in. Her sister couldn't have done that. The God damn it, he had his chest crushed in. Fucking beast man out there. The, the hey, inspector, Skeletor. The inspector pulls out Katie's heroin and says that individuals under the influence of drugs can do things that otherwise beyond the reach of their normal powers and sometimes don't even remember what they've done. Just as your sister here doesn't seem to remember anything about these photographs. The inspector slams his hand on the table and yells, You took a shot last night, didn't you? Admit it. Katie shakes her head, and this is what I hate. She's like, Ooh, you know, and her eyes are huge. Yeah, with those dark circles. And I wonder if the director's like, we want authenticity. Can you not sleep for four days? Yeah. And here, take this. What is it? Just take it. It's, it's heroin. <laughs> she, she walks away and he goes, it's heroin, and everyone on the cast and crew is like, yeah, we know. I can't believe you just did that. Guys, I gave her real heroin. <laughs> Guys, watch Method this. Method acting. Uh, Edna says that this is monstrous. 
What motive does Katie have to kill Martin? Because having kept her here for over a year to get her off the stuff, and after becoming aware that she was still an addict, Martin decided to put her into a clinic. He looks at Ednan and asks, Isn't that why you came down here from London? That was the weirdest one. Isn't that why you came down here from London? I don't know what I became. I don't know, but you're doing a hell of a job. <laughs> I'm doing a hell of a job, laddie. Because you go up in the high pitch when you're when you're getting there. And the funny thing is, like, his Irish isn't, like, it's not that pronounced. You know, like, it's a little bit more subtle. I'm turning it into some kind of nightmare. I mean, would we have it any other way? No. No, we wouldn't. And as per usual, your voice is much better than mine. Oh, no. I don't know about that. It's pretty damn good what you're doing. <laughs> Edna says it's true, but Katie says she doesn't want to go. But she didn't kill him. Just then, an officer knocks on the door and says that George has something very important to tell the inspector. The inspector tells him to come in. George says, Hello, love. I came up here yesterday to see my friends. I love the warm-up. Uh, hello, love. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I'm keeping that in. <laughs> the inspector says, well, because remember the cop says George has something important to tell him. Right. And I love how George is like, he kind of, George pauses because he doesn't have anything important to tell him. And he kind of continues. He goes, can't you see? I've got nothing to do with this. I've got my house to look after. He kind of looks over at Edna and he says, will you tell him? The inspector loses his cool, rightfully so, and grabs George by the jacket. Listen here, boy. What is that? Laddie, 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 listen, listen here, laddie. You keep getting on my nerves, and I'm going to give you another kind of house to look after. One with lots of bars on the windows. The inspector hears Katie crying and says, All right, don't get hysterical. We'll pick this up again later. He says he's finished with them for the moment, but they'll need to check into the local hotel in Southgate and wait until they hear from him. Edna says she wants to stay with Katie, but the inspector doesn't allow it. George looks annoyed. And so this scene, I think it's funny on multiple levels. I love how, how George gets on the inspector's nerves, but like rightfully so like, yes, there's going to be bad blood between them because one's a hippie and one's like a cop, you know, by the book cop. But the, but George being like, I have something important to say and he has nothing to say. I think sometimes the, the inspector has a right to be pissed off at George. Yeah. Fair, fair. He's investigating a murder. He's got to be hard-nosed. I get it. Yeah. I mean, no matter what, Martin is dead. There is a dead man there. Yeah. And George isn't supposed to be there today. I'm not even supposed to be here today, love. <laughs> I love how you have to... You're, I love how love is your uh, your warm-up. <laughs> rot. I love I watched this. Rot. I watched this... Um, uh, the, the Soapbox Derby on Red Bull... TV. It's so much fun to watch. It's so entertaining. Especially during the pandemic, we were burning through these amazing episodes of Red Bull Soapbox Derby. If you if y'all are interested in watching something super wacky and fun. And the commentator who does the um the play the play by play as they're going down the track, he's like, Oh, he uh he lost his dinghy, love. You know, everything has love at the end of it. And I'm like, who's he saying love to? Around the chicane, love. Like, now, what, what the hell is a chicane? 
Now, yeah. I think this is this is a real question. I think probably David or, or, or Dan Parker or somebody can answer us. But, like, isn't there, like, different accent styles, like Cockney yes. and, and stuff like that? So There's like so many. So what is George's here? Like, what is this accent supposed to be? Is this, like, a South London? Is it a North London, you know, type of thing? I, I don't know. I just, I remember, I mean, I think Manchester has its own accent. Um, I remember taking acting classes and... And then my coach was like, you know, give me your British accent. And he goes, whoa, you're all over the place. I go, I know. I, he goes, but if you ever want to nail it, you really got to think about all those things. I'm like, I know, I know. It's complicated. <laughs> well, maybe uh, maybe Dan, Dan Parker or uh, David can help you. And by the way, you can hear Dan. We talked to him on Wrap Up After Dark as well. He's the the artist that does all of our yearly posters and everything. So he's, great. So he's great. a great Such dude. A, oh, dude, yeah. have you seen the new piece he's working on? The um, J- It's Jason Takes Manhattan meets uh, the Fury from uh, the baseball furies from um the warriors have you seen that on, on I, Instagram? i've seen it i've seen it. it looks amazing i can't wait to see the finished product yeah and yeah dan parker's great if you guys uh you know love edgy horror art check out his stuff on instagram and he's such a talented dude and fun to talk to i can't wait to have him back on yeah, we do. We do need to have him back on again. And uh, all of our friends, man, all the friends of this show are so talented. Dan, uh, Dan's great. Uh, David's a fantastic writer. Rob's a writer, you know, and everything. And it's just awesome, man. But it's we awesome got to be surrounded by friends. such cool people. Talented friends. Talented friends. Mm-hmm. Not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> Love. Love. <laughs> As George and Edna are walking to their car, they see an officer put Martin's camera in one of the police cars. Edna says that Katie told her that she was being that when she was being attacked, the camera was taking pictures. The man who killed Martin might be in one of the photographs. She wants to tell the sergeant, but George wants to develop the photos himself. He doesn't trust the police. George tells Edna to distract the police officer while he grabs the film out of the camera. The two of them get into their car and drive directly to the local Five and Dime to drop off the film and have it developed. When George gets back in the car, he tells Edna the pictures will be ready by noon. They are parked by the hotel, so they grab their things and go inside. Ah, the old Five and Dime, a term that, I don't know, I've always called drugstores Five and Dimes, but that is such an old term. What are you, 75 years old? I think so. My soul is. My soul's like, I'm not even supposed to be alive anymore. My arteries are 75 years old. (laughs) There you go. Once inside, they're greeted by the owner by the bar. George asks for separate rooms since they should be cheaper than a double. I don't get that rationale, but that's the script. They they just want (laughs) to rest. The owner says that this is a respectable establishment. And George says that he's sure it is and he intends to spend as little time in it as possible. I want to point out, too, that the manager of the hotel bears a very similar resemblance to um, Mrs. Pickman in In the Mouth of Madness. Yes. Played by Francis Bay. And uh, I was like, oh, this is I wonder if Johnny C was influenced a little bit by this character in this movie. Yeah, and she's not in it a lot, but she has this weird, creepy vibe to it. Um, I was getting vibes of Eleanor Twitty, uh, a.k.a. the library ghost from Ghostbusters, but I think oh. yours is more of, a, of an apt comparison. 
because they're both at a hotel versus yours being in a library. <laughs> and mine being a ghost. Tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> that was, you just bust out a thing reference. Okay. Oh, my God. We're I'm going to spend the entire winter tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> oh, I don't even know where the fuck I am. Well, uh, we just came from the uh, hotel. George asks where the phone is and heads out into the hallway while the owner gets the keys for their rooms. Uh, she asks Edna if they are the people involved in the murder. She has a message for them and hands Edna a piece of paper. As George is on the phone with his friends telling them what happened and why he's late, Edna comes running up and bangs on the glass of the booth, of the phone booth. George hangs up and Edna tells him that Katie had a breakdown, shocker, and the police have taken her to the hospital. They must go there now. George says he has things to do. <laughs> supposed to be here today, but Edna pleads with him. I just can't think anymore. You must help me. I've oh got my. things to do, love. <laughs> no one's supposed to be here today, love. I've got grass to watch grow, love. <laughs> I've got grass to smoke and watch grow. <laughs> Cut to George driving like a bat out of hell. Right. <laughs> and you're right, dude. That thing does like hug the road very it, well. It does. It does. As they get out of the car, we see a POV shot of Guthrie breathing heavy and looking at them. His attention is then drawn to bodies and, a, and metal coffins being taken out the back of the hospital and put into the back of a box truck like we saw George drive past earlier. Cut to a non-POV shot of the doctors carrying one of the coffins, and it has a large window on the top of it, allowing us, the viewer, to see the man in the metal box. And of course, I have to say, I'm the man in the box. <laughs> Down in shit! Dude, I regret I've never seen Allison. I never got to see Allison Chains in concert. Um, I, my first concert was STP and Butthole Surfers, but Allison Chains was like the first band that I really got into, and then it led me to White Zombie, which led me to Tool. But and I've I've seen Tool in concert. I've seen White Zombie in concert. I've actually never seen Rob Zombie in concert. I've seen White Zombie in concert, but I never fucking got to see Allison Chains. Did you? I never saw Alice in Chains, but I saw the band Mad Season. Have you ever seen, you know, Mad Season? It's mm -hmm. Lane Staley. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a side project he did. A great song called The River of Deceit. It's really good. Mad Season. Check out. They did one one album, I think. I saw them uh, in San Francisco back in the day and uh, never saw Alice in. Did I see Alice in Chains? Maybe I did. I don't know. Maybe I'm not sure, but I love I love Lane Staley. That voice was amazing. Yeah, were you were you an Allison Chains fan? Oh yeah, yeah. I love them. STP. I was a decent Pearl Jam. I, Pearl fan. Jam was probably my least favorite, and yet they were probably you know we look back Nirvana and Pearl Jam probably the, so the biggest of the of the grunge like, era. But did not like Nirvana. Did not. I was never a Nirvana fan. Um, but I always I didn't really like Soundgarden that much either. No. And I, I, I appreciate their, their quality of Soundgarden and, and, and Chris Cornell's vocals, but I was yeah. I probably listened to Temple of the Dog more than I did Soundgarden proper. Same. Yeah, check out – you'll like Mad Season for sure. You'll okay. really like Mad Season. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I, Soundgarden, like, I, I like 
some of their songs, but uh, man, like Stone Temple Pilots and Alice in Chains, I would listen to those complete albums from beginning to end versus just skipping tracks, you know? Yes. Yeah. But God, you- when Pearl Jam 10 came out, everyone was like, oh my God, even flow, even flow. I'm like, yeah, it's a really cool song, but you know. And then we heard it on the radio a gazillion times and I never yep. want to hear it again. Right. Um, did you ever see STP in concert? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, who do they see? They opened for another big band. That that era is a blur for me. The, the 90s, the mid-90s yeah. were a blur. Well, Isn't yeah. It crazy? Yeah. It's crazy that that was 30 years ago some of those albums came out. I know. My God. Hashtag Jesus we Christ. old. <laughs> and then the Crows, they're like, well, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Crow. I'm like, oh, my God, it's 30 years ago that movie came out. I, that blew my mind, but also yay for the announcement today that it's finally coming out on 4K. So I'll be uh, pre That movie is going to pop up on pad at some point. We don't dive into much late 90s stuff, but we're going to bring like that last man standing, you know, at some point to the show. Because honestly, man, Crow, the Crow was huge in my life at that time. I I, I was reading Entertainment Weekly, so I followed all the, the shit that was like built. Like every other week there was like something on set happening. And then it culminated into what it culminated into. Um, but man, I saw that in the theater multiple times. I still love that soundtrack. Um, it was just such a huge part of my childhood that we're going to talk about it at some point. Yeah, we are. We have to. We have to. Yeah, I, I imagine just, same way for you, basically. Oh, my God. That movie was that that movie. I talked about that movie with Tess on one of her earlier podcasts. Um, that movie was so influential on so many levels and i love brandon lee love brandon lee so much um it's such a shame but brandon lee i I idolize brandon lee and that movie if if that movie hadn't come out we wouldn't have the goth period that we had bart i'm sorry we wouldn't like that movie made the goth scene that that movie sparked the goth trend for sure if if it already was there it just made it even bigger after that it's and that soundtrack is not every song is great on that soundtrack, but it is it's pretty phenomenal. One of my favorite Cure songs of all time, and and STP song of all time. Ghost Rider, motorcycle. I mean, it's a pretty decent hero. Yeah, it's a pretty good Rollins band song. So yeah, dude, oh. so good. All right, well, we're off track. We're in the nineties. We need Sorry. to go off back love. in seventy four. Hello, Hello, love. Back in seventy four. Well, we're going from 94 back to 70, 50 years ago. This We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of this movie, actually. Oh, shit. Good. Wow. Good call. Thanks for pointing that out. We should have said that at the beginning of this. Um, I do math. I do math. <laughs> Inside the hospital, Edna rushes to her sister's side while George pokes around. He finds the metal coffins and looks inside one. A doctor asks if George wants, wants one for the long voyage home. George asks what he means by that. Just a touch of macabre humor. You see, from here to Manchester, it's quite a ways to go in a freezer unit. All the autopsies and examinations are done in Manchester. He says a lot of people leave their bodies uh, to science these days, and he asks if George would like to make a reservation too. Just then, an alarm for the nursery rings, and the doctor goes rushing to help. George follows after him just to find the doctor helping a nurse who's had her eye scratched out. 
Another male nurse takes her to have the wound cleaned up, and George follows the doctor into the nursery. Inside, the doctor tells George to help him hold down the newborn while he gives it a shot. I have a lot to say about that. We're going to discuss a lot of things here in a second. Yeah, we'll get to yeah. it. The newborn has blood on its fingers. Another nurse rushes in to help, but as George pulls his hand away, the newborn bites his finger. The doctor walks back over to George, and he asks, What's wrong with the child? The doctor says he doesn't know. It's the third baby born since yesterday with an incredible aggressiveness, almost homicidal in its nature. George asks if it's a virus, but the doctor says it isn't. They've run all the tests. As they walk out of the nursery, the doctor tells George that all the babies affected have come from the same area in Southgate. George says, That's curious. When the doctor asks what he means, George says, There's a farm over there where they've set up some sort of machine to destroy insects by ultrasonic rays or something. The doctor says he'd like to have a look at the machine and ask George to show it where it is. So, Zach, this scene here... It's such a thing of the, such a trope of the time where a doctor, someone with authority asks someone without the authority, like with no training, George. But just because George is a guy, he asks him to help him hold down the baby, you know? Yeah. And George at one point is like smoking a cigarette in there. And and I'm like, there's no way in hell this guy would just be wandering through the hospital. Sorry, George, you're not that hunky. And there's this interesting subplot that doesn't get expounded upon, but I love this idea that there's also killer babies, not just zombies, but there's also these homicidal babies. Well, yeah, that doesn't get followed up. It could easily get followed up with, um, but yeah, little psycho babies. Psycho babies, qu'est-ce que c'est? <laughs> <laughs> good one dude yeah, but th- it's like you. yeah I, I that's another thing i love about this movie is that there's this and, and and by the way it will explain or at least what they're thinking of with the baby thing but i love that there's this yeah these killer baby aspect of this movie just it's another piece of the tapestry that i enjoy yeah me too cut to the doctor and george being given a demonstration of how the machine works one of the technicians says that the radiation works on the insect's nervous system it drives them mad and they attack one another we see a shot of two types of ants attacking each other over the body of a dead bee. The doctor asks what the range is on the machine, and the technician says about a mile at present. Now, these ranges are going to matter later in the movie. They're trying to get it up to five miles, though. The technician adds, But of course this can't have anything to do with the children, now could it? It's absurd! The other technician says that the machine has undergone the most stringent testing. The radiation only affects the most primitive forms of nervous systems, like microbes and insects. It's perfectly harmless. George asks how he knows that, and the technician says that he's surrounded by the radiation and isn't attacking anyone. The doctor thanks the technicians, and he and George walk back to the car. The doctor isn't convinced it's the machine, but he does ponder the possibility. A newborn child's nervous system is still in a very elementary state. George asks if he has doubts, then why why not make some noise about it? Let someone know. The doctor reminds him they won't change anyone's mind with just a hypothesis. They mentioned when they mentioned ants uh, at the same time, the same year this movie came out. Another movie came out called Phase Four, 
it reminded me of that phase four, by the way, just dropped on vinegar syndrome, um, which I definitely want to get and will probably get, but it reminded me of phase four, like ants taking over the world. I saw that announcement. I think it was, it's with it within the week of that new Blu-ray, right. Of coming out for phase four. Right. And like, right when I saw it, it I was like, Oh my God. Like I forgot that this movie existed until I saw that announcement. So I'm glad you're bringing it up now. Yeah, if you've never seen Phase Four, highly recommend that one. It's it's quirky, it's weird, it's but it's really good. One movie I want to see that I've never seen is um, with I think Greta Greta is uh, Rats. I think where right? Oh yeah, Rats. And there's frogs with Sam Elliott. <laughs> and there's slugs. Right, and then swarm with yeah. um, with with uh, William Shatner, right? Yeah. <laughs> people, people are like, Oh, there's, you know, there was, there was a time when the, the insect movies, bug movies, creepy crawly movies were everywhere. Food of the gods. Yeah. Yep. Um, go listen to our review of them from the fifties. Them, them, them. <laughs> Hello, love. I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> Cut to the five and dime, and Edna and George are looking at the photos from Martin's camera. You can only see Katie screaming and running. You can't see Guthrie, and George still isn't convinced that he's real. Edna asks the store owner about the tramp that drowned last week. She asks if if he has a picture of Guthrie, but the owner says no. I like how he thinks first. The owner like thinks, and he's like, no. No, I've got <laughs> pornography, but I don't have that. I don't have that. Love? Love. Uh, she asks she asks if there's any reason a camera wouldn't capture someone on film. The owner says if they were a ghost, maybe. Just then, the inspector and Detective Kinsey walk in. The inspector says no one believes in ghosts anymore, including the police. He takes the photos from George and says they aren't quite as stupid as people think they are. George says that Edna had nothing to do with taking the film. It was all him. The inspector says, well, of course. You're all in it together. Aiding and abetting a suspect, withholding information. <laughs> you and your bird here will have to answer for it at the inquest. Ah, bird. That old term. He throws another term in there in just a minute that's uh, a little bit more questionable. George says they're barking up the wrong tree. Inspector goes on, not when I'm dealing with people like you. You're all the same. The lot of you with your long hair and your... It rhymes with maggot. Clothes. <laughs> Drugs, sex, every sort of filth. And you hate the police. George says, You make it easy. I was going to say, after the uh, sergeant drops that line that you just definitely cannot say, um, I was like, I remember that being a bundle of twigs, that being one of the original origins of that word. But then I thought, how long has that word been used as a derogatory slang? And it goes back to like the 14th or 15th century, actually, Holy shit. that that word was used back then, originally used to describe like old ladies. And then it later became something to be used on like men or young boys. So it dates back a long time. Um, and the British were using it quite extensively. That was a slang term way back when. So that and, and it was also answered my term. question. Yeah, and it was also a slang term for uh, cigarettes, too. Or well, that, the, the shortened version of it. Yeah, and then the longer version is a bundle of twigs. Yeah. 
which is so random. Um, but I mean, you know, the word queer used to mean odd, which I guess makes sense. But I guess that word that rhymes with maggots, you know, it, it, it's been around for a really long time and it's, and it's kind of meant the same thing for a really long time. It's just interest. I was, it was more of like a curiosity than anything else. Okay. You, you went deep on that one. I went really deep because I'm like, let's just dig deep to the origin of this. So to, you know, if Dustin is listening to this in hour 12 of this pop pro- of this podcast, uh, I do research too. <laughs> Sometimes I, I can almost guarantee he's not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's playing with that- Diallo's new uh, Dune uh, popcorn bucket. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, but I do like, uh, you know, what George says, how he shoots that back, how you, you make it easy. Um, this pisses the inspector off, and he tells them that he'll see them at the inquest and don't get any ideas about not being there. George throws up his arm and says, Heil Hitler. Like, the inspector wow. shoots him a look and leaves, <laughs> leaves with Detective Kinsey. And again, th- this movie is very strong has a very strong anti-fascism uh, message yeah yeah it's very political as george and edna are about to go to the hotel the store owner says that if they want a picture of guthrie it's in the newspapers he could have said that earlier uh right. it, was, it was taken he had as to, his he body. had to think about it he had to think about it he did he really did have to think about it uh, he said the it was uh the picture was taken when his body was fished out of the water Edna gasps and clutches George's arm when she sees it. It's him, the man I saw, the one that killed Martin. Now, she doesn't actually know. She's just taking her sister's word, you know, that it's actually the same guy. Right. But whatever. Uh, George says that's absurd. He's dead. Look, love, use your head. He died last week and Martin was killed last night. She pleads with George that it is the man and his clothes were wet. He looked exactly like someone who drowned. George asks if he's certain this man is dead. The store owner says that he was there when they put Guthrie into the coffin and took him to the cemetery. George and Edna leave the shop and get in the car and speed off through town. They drive right past three cop cars. The inspector tells Craig to follow them in his car. He thinks they're up. I think they're up to something like that. Cut to (laughs) real quick, but like, I just again love like, he's such a jerk to her george is like look love use your head this man died a week ago and this man died last night you know he's he's so condescending yeah like (laughs) what he what he really wants to say is look bitch (laughs) yeah pretty much pretty much (sighs) cut to edna asking george where they're going in such a hurry he says to the only place i can cure you of your fancy hallucinations those hallucinations aren't even supposed to be here today. Those hallucinations, those hallucinations, those hallucinations, and me aren't even supposed to be here today. I'm supposed love. to be smoking grass, love. <laughs> they speed down the road with Craig in hot pursuit. George makes a right at a fork in the road, and when Craig gets there, he doesn't know which way they went. He drives in the wrong direction. Cut to George pulling up at the Southgate Cemetery. We saw them drive by right before they got to the farm earlier in the film. Edna asks what they're doing there. George says, If the man is dead, he must be here, right? If he is here, then I want you to knock it off about seeing a man in black and all that rot. Because, love, the dead don't walk around. Except in very bad paperback novels. Edna says, 
if you say so. And they walk up the hill to the cemetery. So this cemetery um, is where legend has it. Um, I, I, so I don't know how, how real the Robin Hood's um, uh, myth is. But this cemetery is a, supposed to be where Friar Tuck, uh, the real life Friar Tuck, is buried. So when the um, and it's a beautiful looking cemetery. And when the filmmakers were trying to film there, they also have to contend with tourists, right, who were there because this is sort of common knowledge. And then the tourists complained about all the trash being left around by the crew, so they got sort of kicked out early, so they weren't able to actually shoot there as much as they wanted to. Oh, bummer. Well, I will say this is probably one of my favorite scenes in this movie or moments in this movie, the buildup, because we're almost at the hour mark, I think, of the yeah. film. Or like yeah. Maybe past the hour mark. But um, like it's going to only start getting darker and creepier from this moment on. Yeah. It's funny. We have like we're only halfway through. Actually, it's kind of a this is a longer breakdown. We're only about halfway through it. But things move really fast at some point. Yeah. So George and Edna look around but can't find anyone. They see the groundskeeper's place and check inside, but no one's there either. It looks like the person that lives there left in a hurry because their meal is still sitting on the table, uneaten. They hear a sound coming from the crypt below and decide to go investigate. When they go down into the crypt, they call out, but no one responds. George sees a handful of coffins and wants to check them for Guthrie. He lifts the lid of one and sees an old lady inside. Hello, darling. George checks another one, and it's a guy, but his name is Edward Keith. George finally finds the coffin of Guthrie Wilson, but when he opens it, it's empty. Dun, dun, dun. They're about to leave the crypt when they see fresh blood dripping down the back wall of the tombs. George climbs up a ladder and sees the body of the groundskeeper with his eyes clawed out. Creepy. Just then, the metal door to the crypt slams shut, trapping them inside. They run up the stairs to open it, but as they are banging and shouting, they look back to see Guthrie standing there at the bottom of the crypt. George tries to fight Guthrie, but is easily tossed to the side. The ghoul turns his sights to Edna, but George grabs like a metal stake type of thing. It's like a pole with a spike at the end and impales Guthrie through the back. The zombie barely flinches. He just turns around and walks towards George, who then stabs him in the stomach and chest a few more times to the same effect, which is no effect. Yeah, right. Guthrie rips the stake out of George's hands and sends him to the ground. George gets to his feet and runs back to Edna. Then they both watch in horror as Guthrie resurrects the two other bodies in the crypt by taking the fresh blood from the groundskeeper and wiping it on their dead eyelids. This is cool, dude. What a different sort of thing. Yeah, this is, there's, you know, myth building in this that could have totally been used in other zombie movies, but I, lo I love what they do in this. I love how they bring the dead back to life. I mean, this is almost very much akin to zombie um, with its like almost a voodoo spiritual aspect to it. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and I do want to call out a few things here. Um, the director took great pains in casting the actors who played the zombies because he wanted actual actors. He wanted them to actually act and not just shamble. He also every zombie you see in the movie 
the director gave the actor the backstory for the character. So he told them what they did in life and everything before they died. Now, do we really see that on screen? I'd say no, but I think that shows the level of commitment that the director had towards this movie. Yeah, it's a cool twist. And they took great pains in making sure the blood, because they didn't want that hyper red neon blood that you kind of see at this time. They wanted a blood that was much more realistic, a bit darker. Yeah, yeah, I like it. it when, once you get to the gore, it's very impactful. I feel like we've seen so many movies of this ilk, of this time frame, but then the blood is that that paint red, you know? It's, it like, just looks like paint. Like Dawn of the Dead. One of the things that I never, even as a kid, never really cared for in that movie. Yeah, same. The, the, the blood just looks like fucking red paint. Right. George sees a hole in the back of the hot, one of the higher tombs in the crypt and tells Edna to get up the ladder as fast as she can. George grabs the metal stake off the ground and follows after her. George then takes the metal stake and tries to make the hole bigger so they can fit through it. As he does, Guthrie climbs up behind him and attacks, but George pushes him back off the ladder. Why didn't they kick the ladder over? Because, love, I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> perfect. Fucking perfect. Now we see the other two bodies sit up in their coffins. They have red eyes like Guthrie. And this is awesome, dude. I don't know if you noticed this, but Guthrie stands up too, but it looks like they use some kind of platform to sort of do it, and it looks cool as hell. And watching the the director talk about this, he specifically talked for like five minutes about this. They did. They put a plank under the Guthrie actor and just raised him up because he said, he goes, I didn't want to see them like pushing off with their arms or something. It's like he still wanted this weird supernatural element to it, and I think it's super effective. Yeah, I agree. I love it. Supernatural. (laughs) George finally makes a hole big enough for them to fit through, but before he can escape, he's attacked by the other zombies. He tells Edna to get out as they try to, as they, as the zombies, try to drag him back into the crypt. Once, once she gets through, she finds herself in another hole and tries to climb out. And another cool thing that the director said was he had this own his own personal irrational fear of um, like zombies and undead creatures like grabbing his legs when he's sleeping and like pulling him. So he kind of put that scene in this movie, and he was like, ah, when and he's like, this scene always kind of gets a big thrill out of people they kind of scream when the zombies grab george's legs and he's like that's my fear my uh you know irrational fear on screen and now everyone else can feel it as well that's creepy and it is it's a great moment it's super super terrifying cut to officer craig arriving at the southgate cemetery oh officer craig <laughs> hi officer craig latte he grabs his walkie-talkie and gets out of the car Back at the cemetery, Edna is calling for help as she's stuck in the hole, and George is fighting for his life. So just to kind of explain, I think they were trying to dig another uh, plot, but they kind of were too close to the crypt underneath, and they broke through. So so she's like, they basically, she climbed through a hole in the crypt in the tomb, but now she's stuck in a hole in the ground for like a, a, a coffin, I guess. Isn't that another Alice in Chains song? Down in the hole. <laughs> I think so. Is that from the, the Dirt album? 
Yes, they got man in a box and down in a hole. And... <laughs> yeah. And here comes the rooster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I do love how uh it's so Edna's calling for help as as she's stuck in the hole and George is fighting for his life. George jams the metal bar through one of the zombies' throat, but it doesn't stop him. Guthrie, on the other hand, is smarter than that, and he decides to leave the crypt through the door. Cut to Craig walking around the cemetery, telling the inspector over the radio that he found their car and they are in the cemetery. Cut to George still fighting for his life in the crypt. The two zombies almost pull him uh, out of the tomb, but he catches onto the ledge, and now the ladder falls to the ground. George barely pulls himself up to the t- up to the tomb and his salvation as the zombies grab at his feet. That's the one time I'm always like, oh, my God, because that one yeah. zombie's got a good hold on his foot. It's creepy. At the same time, Officer Craig pulls Edna up out of the hole, but he drops his radio on the ground while doing so. George eventually springs out of the hole in the ground and immediately grabs Edna so they can get the hell out of there. But they are stopped by Guthrie, who's holding the giant, who's holding a giant stone cross that he pulled out of the ground. Officer Craig asks what the hell is going on. They try to run the other way, but are blocked by the other two zombies coming out of the crypt. So the three of them run into the groundskeeper's house and lock the door. It, this was the moment where I'm like, atmosphere, atmosphere, atmosphere. This this movie oozes with it. And location, location, location. And it's like, we think that the movie's going to turn into like a barricade zombie movie. I like that they go there because I feel like they sort of every zombie movie has to have the barricading moment, but I right. do like that it, they don't really stay here for very long. No, I wish that I honestly wish they did. I wouldn't but mind this, it, but this, but this movie is a cool 90 minutes. So, mm-hmm. so they lock the door to the groundskeeper's house. George looks around and quickly realizes there's no other way in or out. Guthrie starts hitting the door with the stone cross Officer Greg grabs the groundskeeper's shotgun and opens a small window and shoots the old lady zombie in the head, but she doesn't die. That's cool. I dig that. Yeah. Yep. He shoots the other male zombie, not Guthrie, in the chest, knocking him over but not killing him. George says it's useless and tells Officer Craig to help him barricade the door with a giant piece of furniture. A little time jump, and we see Edna sitting on the bed, just staring while Officer Craig paces back and forth. He finally sits down and says, they're dead, aren't they? And George says, yeah, but don't ask me, because I haven't the foggiest. Christ only knows what brought him back to life again. Love. And so I said earlier that I really liked Craig's character. This is it. I like that he, he, it does, there's no like that trope of like trying to convince somebody that they're zombies. I like that. He just like, he's not a stupid cop. He just puts it together. He's like, they're, they're fucking dead. Aren't they? He's not a stupid cop. He just, well, he's going to die stupidly. <laughs> Although the inspector does kind of shit on him the entire movie though. Pretty much. George lights a lantern and we hear a low hum coming from outside. Just then he says, I think I do now. The radiation. Of course, it worked on the baby's nervous systems. Why not on those of the dead? The officer asks what he's talking about. Craig, when a person dies, perhaps the nervous system goes on living for a while. Perhaps in some very basic, rude way, like an insect. Edna adds, 
You're right. That man Guthrie. Didn't he die when they began the experiment? Craig is willing to accept that, but what about the others? George speculates. They transmit life to each other through the blood of the living. Like a plague. That's why they kill. Edna says to Craig, Now you know who it was that killed Martin. Just then, more loud banging comes from the door. The wood starts to splinter. They reinforce the barricade with the, the dining table. They know it won't keep the zombies out for long, though. Just then, they hear Craig's radio buzzing from outside. He says if he can get to it, then he can call for help. Cut to the inspector and Detective Kinsey sitting in a police car radioing for Craig. They think that lazy bastard is slacking off again. <laughs> Another officer walks over and asks if they can drive the coroner back to the hospital. He gets in the back of the police car, but the inspector says it's funny he hasn't heard from his man. He then tells the officer he'll send an ambulance for Martin's body. They'll have to do an autopsy. Back at the cemetery, we see Guthrie and the other male zombie lifting a giant tombstone out of the ground to use as a battering ram. Inside the groundskeeper's house, Craig sees he's going to make a run for the radio. He and George move the barricade aside. Before going on his suicide run, Craig says, Oh, poor Craig. Maybe you'll think better of the police if I can pull this off. Nope. Nope. Late. <laughs> Officer Craig runs out the door and right into the arms of Guthrie. He's able to fight him off, but the other male zombie hits him with a giant tombstone, breaking Craig's leg. The wounded officer crawls to the radio and yells into it, Sergeant, this is Craig reporting about the cemetery. There are dead people trying to kill me. Just then, the male zombie starts strangling Craig and holding him down while Guthrie tears into his stomach, ripping it apart. Craig screams and dies. The three ghouls nosh on his innards as George and Edna watch in horror. I'm like, fie, you fools, just run. Yeah, yeah, but this is definitely the most brutal scene so far in the movie. Yes, yes. I'd say the receptionist gets the worst death, but this is the second worst. Right. George says that they have to get out of there, but Edna says she can't. She's afraid. At that moment, the zombies break through the barricade with the tombstone battering ram. Our two protagonists are now cornered. In desperation, George throws in desperation, George throws down the lantern at Guthrie's feet, and the ghoul goes up in flames. The fire spreads, and all three zombies are consumed. Luckily, George and Edna are unharmed. They run out of the cemetery and back to their cars. As they do, they look back at Craig's dead body, thinking no better of the police than they did before. So, Zach, this whole section of the movie, you said, is one of your favorite parts of the film. Elaborate, please. Yeah, no, it's it's so moody, and it's it's the biggest homage to, like, Night of the Living Dead, um, I think, up until this point, where they're trapped in a, in a place. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it's like they had to have the obligatory trapped. I mean, um, you know, Children Shouldn't Play With Death Things did the same thing. They had a, a boarding up scene as well. Right. I, lo I love it, though. It's super creepy. And the the cemetery is or the, you know, cemetery grounds are just ripe for your wicked imagination. And I love the fact that it's a like a beautiful, sunny day when all this is happening. And I feel like that is a nice, fun, stark contrast to the night of Night of the Living Dead. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Down at the cars, George tells Edna to go back to the cottage in her car and tell the police what happened. He's going to take Craig's car and destroy that bloody machine. 
Before they part ways, George reassures Edna that it's all over. There's no danger. She thinks Martin's body will reanimate, but George says the machine only has a range of a mile or so. The cottage is at least three miles away. He'll meet her at the farm. And this is also, too, like, Edna starts, like, caressing George's face and everything. Yeah, it's, uh... Yeah, agreed. <laughs> what were you going to say? It's, it's like it's the the love is starting to, you know, the... the... Well, I, you, tragi- tragedy brings you closer together. Okay, okay, yeah. Kind of like Speed, right? Like in, in Speed, how... She, I think even Sandra Bullock makes that comment or something. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you know, I dated somebody like that, and I was like, oh, yeah. And then the tragedy wears off, and then you come to your senses, as Jack Burton says. Wait, was was it a tragic event with with the two of you, and then it brought you closer? Yeah, and then the tragedy wears off, and you come to your senses. You're like, do I know what this tragic event is? Oh no, no, I don't think I've ever did, talked about this one. Did you kill somebody? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even supposed to be here today, love. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> oh, dude, this is wild that this is in the movie edna drives drives off and as george gets into craig's car he realizes the keys aren't in the ignition he runs after edna yelling for her but she's too far away so he has to run to the farm now why did they put this in i don't know this is why the movie's could have been 90 minutes instead of 95 (laughs) because he got out to him running yeah Back at Martin's cottage, we see the police officer standing by his vehicle. He hears wheezing and looks up to see zombie Martin walking towards him. Back at the farm, George is telling the technicians that they have to turn the machine off. One of the technicians says, You talk about the dead walking, about cannibalism. It's unscientific, man. George says, Lots of things are unscientific, but they happen just the same. Love. Love. (laughs) The farmer's machine... The farmer says that the machine works just fine. It's killed every bloody insect around here except for you, referring to George. The farmer then says that they got the range up to five miles now. This sends George into a panic. He fights off the technicians and the farm and the farmer and starts beating on the machine until it breaks. The farmer and the technicians run to their vehicle because George is clearly a maniac. And this is also funny. He calls out for them to stop. He needs a ride to the Madison's place. <laughs> Why would they drive him there? Because they're so nice. Why would he think that they would drive him there? Right. No, exactly. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> he pops off the machine and races towards them, but they slam the door in his face. He bangs on the van as it drives off, and they, <laughs> yelling that they have to burn the corpses. He's and out I of do- his mind. Yeah, he's like he's like so maniacal at this point. Well, yeah, and he says they have to burn the corpses, right? Like, yeah, yeah, because now he knows that that's kind of. I mean, the, the movie establishes that's kind of the only way to dispose of them here, because shooting them in the head doesn't work, right? Hey, everybody, Corey here. I just wanted to let you know that we'll be right back after these short messages. In a world that has been completely divided for so long. Two movie fans have decided to unite for the people and the betterment of mankind. One, an action movie buff. The other, a horror movie fanatic. 
Together, they will try to bridge the gap of both genres into one podcast with their battle cry, Give Me Back, My Action and Horror Movies. Listen along as Charlie and Nate alternate each week talking about action and horror movies they cherish, mostly from the VHS era. Also, including some modern examples that felt like the movies they grew up with by answering the battle cry. Give me back my action and horror movies. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Look them up on Facebook and Instagram. And now, back to the show. Back at the hospital, a police officer asks Katie's nurse if her sister or George have tried to contact her. She says no, and he radios back to the inspector with the information. He tells the, the inspector tells the officer to radio headquarters for reinforcements and to do a house-to-house search. Cut to the cemetery, and we see the inspector in the corner standing over Craig's body as he's talking to the officer in the hospital. They killed Craig and the caretaker, so if they resist... <laughs> Shoot to kill. As they cover the dead body, the dead officer's body, the inspector says, Poor Craig, if only you had time to notify us. <laughs> I thought I wrote down, I'm like, this detective has no freaking clue. Not at all. The inspector checks the burned bodies uh, in the caretaker's house. The coroner says, The thing I don't understand is the difference in the bodies. Those have been horribly mutilated, pointing to Craig, whereas these bodies looks like they were intact, pointing to Guthrie and company. The inspector asks why the hell did they burn the bodies? He thinks Edna and George are a couple of drug-crazed maniacs. The coroner says they are worse than that. He looks down at the broken cross Guthrie used to break the barricade, and he thinks they are Satanists. Dun-dun-dun. Satanic panic. Satanic panic. I mean, dude, that was all the way back. I mean, I know the 80s had that massive satanic panic, but that was all the way back in the 70s, too. Yeah, hippie cults. Well, you think about, like, Charles Manson and all that. But they weren't Satanists, though. But but people kind of just pile everything together. Yeah. Yeah, Helter Skelter and all that. Yeah, yeah. The inspector and the coroner walk down to their car at the bottom of the cemetery, and they're greeted by another officer talking to the f- to the farm farmer and the two technicians. He tells them what happened at the farm with George. Cut to Edna driving up to the cottage and right past the dead cop on the ground that I guess she didn't see, and she almost ran over. Yep. That would have been funny if she did. I mean, that was an actor, though, so <laughs> it wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, yes, it would have. No. But she's like in the car and with thump thump. Go, 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 oh, whoa, whoa, oh, what crap. was that? <laughs> it sounds like your mom. Oh, what was Ooh. that? Oh, I think I just ran over somebody. Oh, no. I, I better do it again just to make sure. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. I'm not dead. Now I'm dead. Love. <laughs> Love. <laughs> Carol. <laughs> she, uh, she checks the front door of the house, but it's locked. She yells out for the police officer and honks her horn, but gets no reply. We hear Zombie Martin's ghoulish breathing. Edna finally looks over at the police jeep and sees the officer's severed hand still hanging onto the door. She backs away slowly into the fog, but the camera pulls back and we see Zombie Martin standing behind her. He attacks Edna, ripping her sleeve and tearing the flesh in her left forearm. 
She breaks free and runs to the car. She tries to speed away but hits the police jeep because she's a hysterical woman. <laughs> That's my commentary. Wow. <laughs> That's what the movie's portraying. Oh, listen. Eh. Backtrack, backtrack. <laughs> Love. This gives Martin a chance to attack the car, but she shakes him off and runs over the body before driving off into the night. That's a bump in the night. There you go. As Edna drives through the thick fog, she comes to a stop on the side of the road. She looks around and then gets out of the car. She gets startled because she thinks she sees zombie Martin coming out of the dark, but it's really just George running towards her. George runs up to the almost catatonic Edna and sees her the wound on her arm. She says, Martin tried to kill me. Not Chris Martin, if anybody's wondering from Coldplay. Nobody was wondering that. Oh. <laughs> Cut to George driving to a gas station where a woman and her daughter with Down syndrome are working. Poor Morin. What'd you say? That little girl's name is Morin. Poor Morin. Poor Morin. She's trying to help. I know. No whiskey, though. He helps Edna out of the car and into the arms of the woman. George tells her to call an ambulance as he grabs a can of gasoline and puts it in the car. I haven't time to explain. I'll be back in a few minutes. He goes to burn Martin's body. As George speeds off, the woman helps Edna into a chair while her daughter grabs her something to drink. Water! Not whiskey. She may not have any money. Yeah, cheap piece of crap. We see Edna starting to freak out as the daughter hands her a glass of water. The crazed woman thinks it's zombie Martin and smashes it out of the daughter's hands. Cut back to George pulling up in front of the cottage. He slowly walks up to Martin's body to burn it with the can of gasoline. But just then someone yells, grab him. And Kinsey, who we thought was Martin, jumps up. He and multiple other officers grab George while the in, in, while the inspector turns on his headlights and walks over. Sorry to spoil your fun, old boy, but we sent Martin's body back to the hospital for an autopsy. As for poor old Benson, I'd like to... George cuts him off and tells him to put out an alarm at once. If Martin arrives at the hospital, they'll be right back to where they started. There are three bodies in there, and he can bring them all back to life. The inspector scoffs and says... Bring the dead back to life. What kind of idiots do you think we are? <laughs> George starts yelling it's the truth, and they have to burn the bodies, but the inspector tells his men to take the lunatic away. Burn the bodies, love. I'm not even, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Love. <laughs> burn the body. Yeah, you moved the tombstones, but you didn't move the bodies. What's that from? Poltergeist. Oh, yeah. When's the last time you watched that? Uh... I'd say probably about four years ago, maybe. You? Probably like 30 or 30 years ago, probably. Oh, no shit. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, it's been I mean, a while. You're not a big Poltergeist fan, huh? No, I am. I am. I just have never, I just, I just haven't watched it in forevs. Fucking, uh, what, Sonny, Sonny, uh, what's his name? Land, Landum? Langham? Yeah, he was one of the construction workers, right? Yeah, that, that kind of cat calls the daughter and then That's she kind of right. flicks him off or whatever. Wow, yeah. Yeah. On on our upcoming episode of Two Dollar Late Fee, uh there's a there was a actor, very well known actor in the movie, and I just it I was watching it earlier today and I was like, whoa, that guy's I forgot he was in this movie. <laughs> Who was it? 
William H. Macy. Oh, no shit. In oh, The wow. Last Dragon. Oh, shit. Wow. No shit. Anyways, it's just crazy when you see, like, you know, well-known people in really small roles. Yeah, before they became big. Right, right. Cut back to the two technicians working on their infernal machine, and they get it working again. We hear a low hum emanating from the device. Cut to Martin's body being taken to the hospital where Katie is, and we can hear the hum. We see Martin open his eyes as they carry his body inside. I sent I sent that video to Zach, and then I sent that gif of Vince McMahon on the mat, like acting like he's knocked out, but he kind of opens his eyes and smiles. I was like, I said, Zach, I go, same energy. Same energy, just one is a complete and utter piece of garbage. And then the other one is from a movie, a horror film that we're breaking <laughs> down right now. The other one's a zombie. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> what a piece of shit. I know, my God. Vince McMahon is proof that power corrupts absolutely. Yeah, he, ab, yeah, just beyond disgusting, beyond disgusting. In, in our friend group, we tried to put a memoriam on Vince McMahon gifs, and uh, it didn't take. Nope, can't. <laughs> can't. You know. Can't stop, won't stop. Nope. <laughs> the order, the orderlies drop Martin's body off in the morgue. What, did you like? Did you notice that like the actor, the guy who's playing Martin, like they roll him over onto the they kind of drop him onto that fucking slab and he doesn't like he doesn't flinch or anything this is my big break i'm gonna be the next Lawrence olivier no you're not <laughs> wrong <laughs> uh so uh they drop his body off in the morgue where one of the doctors is looking at another dead body he turns his back on martin and when he turns back around martin attacks him from the shadows things are going to start going very quick now yeah, this is the third and final act right now. Yeah. Back at the police station, the inspector, a detective, not Kinsey, and the coroner are questioning George about all the antiques in his bag. They still think he's a Satanist, but George says he sells antiques and relics like these, and he was bringing them to a shopkeeper in Windermere. They want to know where Edna is, but George tells them if they're so smart to figure it out. They have a statement that George admits burning the corpses. The inspector wants him to admit killing the two officers and it'll all be over. George reiterates it was the corpses that killed the officers. He gets excited and calls the inspector a bloody idiot for not listening to him and gets smacked in the face by the old man. The other detective stops George from punching the inspector and tells the older man to get a hold of himself. The inspector tells a police officer to take George to the bathroom and clean him up. Back in the morgue, we see the three zombies, including Martin, eating the doctor's body. Back in the police station's bathroom, George cleans up his bloody lip while an officer watches him. He goes to grab the towel and throws it in the officer's face, then jumps out the window and bolts. I do love how the officer reacts to the towel in the same way someone in an alien movie reacts to getting face hugged. He's like, <laughs> it's, just, it's just a towel. Yeah, come on. Come on, dude. <laughs> I do love earlier when uh, when when George is like, the corpses, the corpses. Yeah, gets all excited. His Cockney accent gets worse as he does. Right. George jumps into a police car and speeds off. Back inside, the inspector is notified that George escaped, and he yells for Kinsey as he runs out of the office. George speeds to the gas station where he left Edna, but she isn't there, and the lady is cleaning up the mess she made when she freaked out. George asks where she is, and the lady said they called the ambulance like he asked, and she's at the hospital. 
George runs to the payphone at the end of the gas station parking lot. Back in the hospital, we see a young female receptionist talking on the phone to her friend about a movie she saw. Another call comes through, and it's George asking for Dr. Duffield. That's the doctor he was talking to earlier that he took to see the machine, but we don't actually get his full name until now. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Duffield, the the guy who lets, you know, um, hippie smoking in the hospital just hold on to a baby. Hold on and help him with weird yeah. things. And yeah, yeah, and such. Yeah. They're all... <laughs> They're all in terrible danger. The receptionist says she can't patch him through to the operating room, but eventually relents and says she'll get the doctor. Cut to Dr. Duffield giving Edna a sedative as she's lying in bed. Her legs and her arms are in restraints, and we can see just how gnarly her arm wound is. That was cool. It's very gnarly. The phone buzzes, and the nurse answers it, then tells the doctor it's for him. She places it down while the doctor is still giving Edna a shot. George yells... Hello? From the phone booth, then turns around and sees the police car slam on its brakes and reverse towards him. Uh Uh-oh. The doctor picks up the phone in the hospital, but we see George is now running back to his car. He speeds off just as Kenzie gets there. Kenzie gets back in the police car and speeds off after George. Cut back to the receptionist, and she's talking to her friend on the phone. She looks up at the door just as Martin and his two zombie friends break through and attack her. Martin strangles her with the phone cord while the other one rips her shirt open and tears her breast off. Uh, They specifically wanted to cast a flat-chested woman so they could have that prosthetic breast there. Um, And another one digs into her stomach and rips out her intestines. Zach, this one's gnarly. Tell me what you think. It's so gross. Yeah, it, it... I mean, it border. It's it's Dawn of the Dead level gore at this point. And I get shades, a little shades of Fulci with its cruelty to to females by having this lady's breast getting ripped out. And it's almost like I know it's supposed to be the other zombies ripping out her intestines, but it looks like he's like going for her like uterus or something. I almost had this feeling like it's ripping apart her female anatomy essentially. Yeah, it's really gross. Cut to George speeding to the hospital while the do- while the police chase him. Back in the hospital, Dr. Duffield is talking to Katie. She wants to see her sister. The doctor thinks it'll do Edna some good, and so he allows it. They walk through the hallway and come to the elevator. It's one of those elevators that are sort of open, and they have like that sliding metal door thing, that fence thingy. Yeah, like the cage, basically. Yeah. As the doctor and Katie are facing the elevator, they don't see Martin and his zombie friends walking towards them from behind. As the elevator door opens, the doctor is attacked. Katie jumps inside and closes the gate. She gasps and says, Martin! Martin! (laughs) Did you ever watch Martin back in the day? I never watched it. Yeah, I never really watched it. I know that John Grise was on it, though, the guy who plays Uncle Rico in uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Well, did he have like a... a He's like a regular a, role, I think. Interesting. Yeah. I watched it sometimes. I can't remember like if it was... It might have been... Maybe it was on like right after In Living Color or something. Like I, I feel like I know the theme song better than I know the actual show, which is anytime I see Martin, I'm, I think Martin. I, it wasn't my thing. I was... What was I watching at that, that in the mid, early 90s? 
Oh, I know. I was watching cop shows on CBS, like um, the Hat Squad, Hat Squad, and Max Monroe, Loose Cannon. (laughs) Go check out TV Obscura for more of that stuff. Uh, uh. (laughs) The doctor grabs an axe from the wall and tries to fight off the undead. As he does, Martin grabs Katie through the elevator gate, and the doctor must retreat up the stairs. One of the zombies pursues him as he hits it in the chest with an axe in the in its hairy chest. Yeah, this is the guy where I'm like, oh, his his, his pubes are braided. Yeah, he's very hairy. He's very hairy, love. I'm not. <laughs> it, it's kind of repulsive because he's got this big gaping, gouging wound down his chest. I know it's all like makeup. It's, it's just a lot of a lot of puby hair. It is. It's a lot of hair. <laughs> Oof. It's like where his his chest hair mimics his crotch hair. Yeah. <laughs> some some dudes have that. Some guys have chest hair that's like straight, and then they're. Yeah, this guy's like all one it's, big rug. It's all pubes. It's all it's all pubes. pubes. It's like uh, Michael P. S. Hayes, the wrestler. Michael purely sexy Hayes. Oh God! Like his whole body is just like he's like rubbing his hairy chest. Can you imagine wrestling that? Like I, having a. Nope. No. No, nope. I've talked about it before my my stepdad had had that like he was <sighs> like a werewolf, but then he had like these giant <laughs> burns on his body from when he was a kid. So yes, these giant patches and yeah, dude, it was it was uh, wild times, man. Wild Patchy. times in my house growing up. Yeah, <laughs> manscaping uh, is a real thing. Yeah, I mean, luckily I don't have to do it up top because. May do it down below because that's just you know courtesy for my wife. But up top, <laughs> oh, I don't, God. I don't have any, uh, I don't have any hair on my my chest or back at all. We just lost five listeners, <laughs> and then we gained three more, and then we gained f- ten. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Woof! Are you guys talking about bears? No. <laughs> Meow. <I> Otters? <laughs> are you an otter? No. No. <laughs> So, so that that hairy, hairy zombie, and then it, I like how the chest, like the the axe, takes like a chunk out of his chest too. Yeah, yeah, this is gross. I mean, this like this third act of gore is it's really gross, but in a good way. Yeah. Uh, the doctor swings again, and the zombie grabs the axe and then hits the doctor in the head with it, killing him. I, I that was cool. Cracks his skull. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I like how it wasn't like something. Like an even thing, like cuts the. It just made a giant crack in his head, basically. It felt like it was even realistic. Flow. <laughs> Thoughts arrive like butterflies. Flash. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we see Martin strangling Katie to death through the elevator gate. Oh. Uh, Our big rips to the heavy hangers. Cut to George speeding through town and near narrowly dodging a roadblock the inspector and his men set up. <laughs> this does cause the car pursuing him to stop. The inspector gets in and they continue the chase, but George has a, much more of a lead now. Back in the hospital, we see Katie opening the door to Edna's room and walking in. Edna tells Katie, don't worry about me. I'm much better now. Katie doesn't say anything. She just walks over to the table, grabs a pair of scissors, then goes over to her sister and attacks her. Katie stabs Edna in the shoulder twice before she can break free of her restraints and fend off her undead sister. That's one of the, I think that was one of the freakier images in the movie where she's walking in. We 
kind of are like maybe she's but like but knowing that she's a zombie and rewatching it i think that's cool man i like it when there's no obvious damage to the zombie and you think it's a person but it's not i like that yeah yeah we're gonna get we're gonna get that again in a little bit yes we are an orderly in another room hears the screaming and wants to check but another orderly says it's just that crazy lady and the doctor will take care of it Back in the room, Edna forces Katie off of her and frees herself from the restraints. She goes to run out the door, but Martin and the other zombies block her exit. We see George pull up to the hospital and run inside where he finds the mangled body of the receptionist at the front desk. He yells for Edna. She yells back at him from her room where she's cornered by the horde. George runs down the hall and sees the zombie that killed Dr. Duffield sitting on the stairs eating his flesh. At the same time, Martin and the zombies rip Edna's gown open as they attack. Accidental nudity. Accidental nudity. George grabs the doctor's discarded axe and wraps it in a towel and pours flammable liquid on it to make a torch. He lights it and burns the zombie on the stairs. And real quick, Zach, I like how they do the burns because they clearly just put fire in front of the act like between the actor and the camera and then maybe some fires behind it and the actor kind of slumps down i think it's super effective yeah it's all you got to do let's let's recreate that it'll be super easy yeah just put fire in front of the zoom screen and be like "Ah, ah, i'm on fire (laughs) Ah, fire." (laughs) (laughs) or just simply just "Ah, ah." just fade away George then runs to Edna's room to find her lying on the ground, and Martin, Katie, and the other guy are about to tear into her. They stand up when they see George and walk towards him. He lights them on fire, and the whole room starts to burn. George grabs Edna and carries her out of the burning room. Lighthearted music kicks in as he holds her in his arms. George then looks into Edna's eyes and sees that they are red. She's a zombie. Or better yet, she's a zombie. Love. Zombie. Love. She starts to attack him, and he's forced to throw her into the burning room and watch her die. This is so awesome. Yeah, it's cool. And he's like, I never really loved her anyways. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, Zach's joking right there, but I got to say that that. I do like this where he, he actually, you could, you could, but you could see the, the sadness in his eyes. Cause I feel like, and the director mentions this multiple times. He wanted this to be sort of a love story where they were just, they could never make it happen. Like it would just, it was always destined to sort of be against them sort of. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm I am joking. It, it is a sad moment. Cause he's, he like started finally connecting with her and then she's dead. And then off to hell she goes. Off the hell she goes, and he's like, and then he whispers, I wasn't even supposed to be here today, love. (laughs) I wasn't even supposed to be here today, love. (laughs) And it gets even more tragic. Just then. This sucks. This sucks. Just then, a gunshot rings out, and George is spun around with a bullet to the shoulder. He's shot three more times, center mass, and falls to his knees. This is what this is what gets me. He kind of like he looks up in pain with his mouth open as the inspector is holding the gun. 
The cop then plugs George right between the eyes and he falls over dead. And I feel like this is kind of like akin to Ben's fate at the the end of the original Night of the Living Dead. Because the remake, when Ben gets shot, he's already a zombie. He's but already it, a zombie. Yeah, but yeah. The, in the, this is like their take on the original. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan. I'm not a fan of dark endings like this, but it has to be because it sets up the the final scene. The come up and yep. But I don't like movies. I don't like endings like this. I just wish I just wish the hero would survive. Right. You don't like it when the protagonist doesn't live at the end. Nope. I just don't. Did this uh does this ending or this moment here does this detract from the film at all for you? No, no, no. It's just more like, oh man. Okay, fine. I yeah. get it. And it's it's also he's George is so fucking cool. You just you don't want yeah. to he's gunned down in the prime of his life, love. That's why I love so many of that's why I love so many of Carpenter's movies because it's like you don't see the guy well, that was the one thing about they live that probably I, I lost a point or a half a point for me when I was rating it was having Roddy Piper look like he's dying at the end. Yeah. Like, no, don't kill off the cool guy. They killed off the cool guy. They killed off the cool guy and uh, you know, it would lowers a half a point for me, love. <laughs> I wasn't even supposed to be today. Oh, you were. Well, you were, she. The inspector and his men walk over to George's body, and the old man says, Ha cha cha cha, I wish the dead could come back to life, you bastard, because then I could kill you again. I mean, it's kind of a cool line. Yeah. And plays into the ending, the true ending. I'm still a, I'm still a dick. Yep. You, you cop killer. The next morning, we see a huge group of people standing outside the hospital, onlookers and news reporters. The inspector and Kinsey walk out and get into the back of a police car, and they drive off. As they're driving through the countryside, Kinsey asks where they're heading to. Back to the station? The inspector says, Nah, I booked a room in the hotel here. All I need is a good night's sleep and time to forget this whole bloody mess. Good lord, man. You've got a lot of paperwork and shit that's going to be happening. You just want to forget it all. I let one of my peons do it for me. Kenzie says that that probably won't happen. The papers are going crazy over everything that happened. They like you. It looks like you'll be a regular hero. The inspector smiles and says, Justice has been a bit slow in these parts with all the permissive rot going on. Maybe people learned a thing or two from my example here. Kinsey and, the oh, boy. Kinsey and the inspector smile at each other. And then Kinsey gets excited when he sees the experimental bug killer with the two technicians in a field as they drive by. He says, they say that machine works wonders. It killed every parasite for miles. We'll have a fabulous crop of apples this year, Sergeant. I'm just mad about apples. I'm just mad about apples. Oh. Favorite line in the movie. Favorite line in the movie. <laughs> Who the fuck says that? I'm just mad about apples. Apples are just mad about me. <laughs> I mean, I love apples, but I don't know anyone who would like to mad I'm just apples. mad about apples. Oh, oh, God. Cut to the inspector being dropped off at the hotel. He walks up the stairs and into his dark room. He goes to close the blinds when he hears ghoulish breathing coming from the corner behind him. <laughs> I'm not even supposed to be here today. He turns around and sees Zombie George step out of the shadows. I love this shot, like just him yeah. coming out of the darkness. 
kind of shade over his face. Mm-hmm. The inspector empties his clip into George, but it doesn't stop him. The undead young art dealer from Manchester gets his revenge and kills the inspector by strangling him to death. The credits roll over a shot of the infernal machine that brings the dead back to life. Zach, my question to you is, do you think George brings the inspector back to life as a zombie? Or do you think his revenge is that he doesn't and leaves the inspector dead? What is a bigger revenge? Oh, bring him back as a zombie. And then everyone can see who he is, so he gets killed again. There you go. I'm with you, man. I think he's going to bring him back, too. Final thoughts on the man, the living dead at Manchester Morgue, a.k.a. Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Let Sleeping Corpses Lie in the Manchester Morgue south of Dunholm, Brixton, England. Jelly babies are delicious, and I can't think of any more words that come out of England except for crumpets and tea. Uh, th- such an enjoyable film. It's it's 90 minutes. You won't blink and you'll the movie's over. It's so good. And it's tragic enough. It's gory enough. And gosh darn it, I love it. it just, it's got everything. It's got everything you want. It's got everything you want on a podcasting after dark movie. And I don't even know what accent I'm doing right now, love. But it's, <laughs> it's terrible. And uh, no, I, I, I thought it was great. And you know, George is a great protagonist and uh, the ending is cool. Uh, I also thought it was interesting at the end, they like list all the supporting actors, which was, you know, an interesting route to go. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they, they list all the lead actors in the beginning of the movie, obviously, but I was like, Oh, this is cool. They're, they're giving a shout out to all the supporting actors at the end. That's cool. Uh, yeah, no, I loved it, man. It's great. Nice. Yeah, dude. Me too, buddy. I always enjoy this film. I think it holds up well. I think the themes that it's working with, um, what it's talking about, you know, holds up well. Obviously, a lot of stuff of its time with the female protagonist not being as as strong as as we would hope for. But again, this is still, yeah, this is pre-alien, pre that whole, you know, push of having strong females and and everything. Um, So it's of its time. So always take that with a grain of salt. But otherwise, I think it's it's an awesome zombie movie. It's something different, and I really recommend people checking it out if they've never seen it. Yeah, yeah, go get it. The get the uh, the Synapse version. It's great. The quality's awesome. Yeah, because otherwise, I don't know where. No, I take it back. I do know where streaming. It's on Shutter, I believe. Because uh, Myra and I watched it on Shutter about a year and a half ago, and that's what sort of reignited my love for it. I was like, oh, I fucking love this movie, and then um, um, that's what sort of made me, you know, do. This. So yeah, it should be on Shutter. And someone posted a, a free version on YouTube with the documentary at the end of it as well. Oh wow! Okay. So if you go if you go on YouTube, it, it it says like three hours long or something, and you're like, why is this three hours long? It's because the documentary is tagged on at the end. I think I think it is. I mean, yeah. I mean, the documentary is sure. same length as the movie. It's ninety minute documentary. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And but but like Zach said, and I reiterate, go pick up the Synapse Blu-ray. It has the documentary. It looks great, you know, and everything. And and it's a great little case. I like the black. 
Um, it's not 4K like you know. 4K's always come in black. It's not, but it's a Blu-ray. But I like the black shell case. You know. Yeah, it's very cool. It's classy. It is. It is. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you had fun with this one, buddy. And I, I knew yeah, you me would. Too. I was excited to to bring it to the table. Well, I was gonna bring it last Halloween, um, but uh, we went with Demons One and Two instead. So it's funny that we both brought halloween movies to february your birthday month yeah <laughs> i can't wait for our next one and uh if you want to know what our next movie is then go listen to the last wrap up after dark otherwise you'll have to wait a couple weeks to find out but um all of our links for podcasting after dark can be found over at podcastingafterdark.com that's podcastingafterdark.com so you can find all of our podcatchers apple spotify patreon yada 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 but you can also find our merch store there as well and you can you know contact us through there so pretty much if you want to find us if you want to find out where we are you know social media stuff and everything all the links are on podcastingafterdark.com that's podcastingafterdark.com same goes for two dollar late fee uh zach and dustin have a, a website as well two dollar late fee um dot com and same thing find ever find all the links over there to their patreon podcatchers social media and contact forms as well as back backlog of episodes and stuff like that um this is dropping in february you guys are back from your uh, uh hiatus in january so what do you have what is kicking off what are you guys kicking off season five with Season five kicked off with Weird Science, and our interview of the month is with Suzanne Snyder from Weird Science, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and of two, course... Two episodes of Seinfeld. Two, two episodes of Seinfeld. Oh, and Return of the Living Dead Part 2. She oh, talks yeah. about all that stuff in the interview. It's, oh, yeah. it's a really fun interview. Super uh, gracious person. She's good buddies with Jill Sholin, and... Um, you know, she talks a little bit about their relationship. It's it's a really fun conversation. I'm sure we'll have her back on the show again for maybe her and Jill will be on. But no, it's a lot of fun. And then we'll be launching our premiere episode of 80s Kids Unite. It's a cross platform. So it's going to be on Podcasting After Dark and $2 Late Fee. Uh, we're actually, as of the recording of this, we're going to be recording it the following week. Um, it's... The cool thing about this show is if you're a patron, you get to suggest the topics that we discuss on the show. For example, um, you know, if you're a big fan of Starriers, the, the the toys that Corey loves, and you suggest that, we might bring it up on the show. Uh, so if you want to suggest a topic that we can talk about on the show, go to patreon.com slash podcasting after dark or patreon.com slash $2 late fee uh, or both. And you can sub help support the shows and be a part of the show. We will give you copious shout outs. Um, we're really excited. It's going to be Corey and me and Dustin uh, and it'll be Diallo as well and Paul London. So they, they those two might not always be on every episode it kind of depends on their schedules uh but we will be doing a monthly show and there's lots more to come so uh stay tuned yeah 80s kids unite buddy i'm very excited for that and yeah we know we have um a lot of cross-pollination with listeners and patreon members but you don't have to be members to both patreons to suggest just Either or, because me, Zach, and Dustin have a uh, a shared iPhone note where we're kind of you know 
bringing putting all the suggestions in there. So drop a drop us a line on Patreon and let us know what you want us to talk about. And I'm very excited to uh, to do that show with you guys next next week. So very excited. I'm also excited for Zach's uh, next movie, his movie pick uh, for this month, my birthday month, and uh, it's a movie that he's been talking about. Pretty much since the beginning of Podcast After Dark. So I'm excited to actually see it for the first time because I waited. Even though my buddy Bert sent me a copy of this film, I still haven't watched it yet because I wanted to wait, be fresh for the viewing, uh, for the review. Yeah, and if you listen to our 80s Kids Unite Comic-Con panel episode, I might have brought it up in that episode. Oh, that's right, you did. (laughs) Go back and check that one out, guys. So... Thank you all so much for supporting the show. Thank you all so much for checking out this episode. And as always, I'm not even supposed to be here today, love. (laughs) But we'll catch you on the dark side anyways, love. Be sure to subscribe to Podcasting After Dark and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Support Podcasting After Dark on Patreon. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Podcasting After Dark. And visit us next time for another installment of Podcasting After Dark with Corey Stevenson and Zach Schaefer. I'm John, and I'm the host of Action Action. Every week, I'm joined by James. hey And Dustin. Hello. And each week, we review, debate, and rank a different action movie. We're creating the ultimate list of action movies. From awful to awesome. So if you want to hear three more white guys with beards talk about action movies. And argue about where they belong on our list. And decide you hate us because we've made fun of your favorite movie. Join us every Tuesday, and you can find us on your favorite podcatcher. And Steven Seagal is a joke.